And now it's time to bait our hooks, cast our nets, drop our poles in the water, and fish for some jokes with Down on the Dock. Welcome to episode 15 of Down on the Docks. I'm joined by uh, producer extraordinaire, Dave Sarah. How you doing today, buddy? Hello. Doing great. Yeah. What's missing today? Uh, Dustin? My... Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. guess what? Here's what we do when we don't have a host around here. When you've been playing shithole clubs like I have in Los Angeles. I'm missing my boner. That's <laughs> what I wanted to say. You Are got the wrong. I, I think you're on the, the wrong joke? podcast I'm right on, now. Late on the joke. It's anyway, okay. uh, when you've been in stand-up comedy as long as I have, you go to the pros, and when you cover an episode like we're going to cover today, Amen. you go to an '80s pro. Yeah. Okay. And I'm excited to announce uh, we have a very special guest, obviously, in the studio. You've seen him on the Jellies. Um, I'm dying up here. Um, of course, roast battle. <laughs> uh, he uh, also uh, co-hosts uh, the Comedy Store Wrestling Podcast, and he hosts his own podcast, which I've been a fan of for years, Inappropriate Earl. Earl Skakel's on the show, everybody. Welcome to the show, Earl. Hell yeah. The honor All is right. mine. I'm embarrassed that you haven't been on Inappropriate Earl. Oh, I was in a dark place when you started that, and I just came out of that dark place about six months ago. So I am, I am a free agent now, and I am, I am willing and able I mean, uh, it's the little podcast that could. I mean, not. Many, I think I'm at episode 358. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you should... know, I think Rogan's at 2000, so it's, it's yeah. not on his level. But, uh, you know, I haven't made a dollar on the show. But you're consistent <laughs> with your content, and that's what matters. For the most part. I mean, now that I do the Comedy Store Wrestling podcast, yeah. I'm more consistent with that. Yeah. Just because everything's done for me. I literally walk in. Eddie's the brains, my co-host. Uh, John Sosis is the engineer. He like, and lately I've been cutting wrestling promos on Roast Battle, and they're perfectly <laughs> edited. So it's really I'm not lazy, but it is nice to. I'm not very technically inclined. Yeah, I'm horrible at it. So it is really nice. Well, to I'm sorry to interrupt. Not have to do anything, but yeah, just show just up. Show up and walk up. That's pretty yes. much what you do. Well, Dave. That, that's that only happened today because we were, you know, shooting on a, a little bit on a different day. Earl's coming in. We had to make accommodations, and it is late. I do. I work a nine to five. Well, I'm not like you guys. What day just... do you usually shoot on? Sunday? Sundays. Yeah. So for those of you that aren't familiar with the show, and by those I just mean uh, Earl and Lois. Basically, uh, you know, I told you that we break down a documentary every week. And then, of course, we insert our own personal brand of humor. And I saw this documentary, and I said, there's only one person in the world that I need to bring <laughs> on to discuss this documentary, and it was you. And i just seen it. And just so you know, it is uh, Curse of the Chippendales, released in 2021, directed by Jesse Vile. It's on Discovery Plus uh, on Amazon. It's a four-part. I Plus. saw this. I, I watched this, and as soon as I did... 
like the ghost in the machine Facebook was listening to me because I went on your Instagram. I didn't go to your Instagram. I just turned on Instagram and I see you walking down the street doing a tour of one of the old Chippendales famous clubs in West LA. It was the original Chippendales so, club. So did you just watch it and you were like, I got to go back to where all the action was, where all the fucking yeah. dicks were swinging back in the day? And you could feel the energy. The I think after Chippendales, it was a, I might be wrong on this, but a great, a preschool or... Well, it's an adult daycare center now. Yeah, I mean, well, now it's abandoned. So it, it, I think it went from the preschool to adult daycare and now it's in, like I was telling our incredible producer, <laughs> if I had like millions of dollars... I, I'll assume, based on what I saw on right. my walkthrough, it needs at least a million dollars worth of renovations. Right. Just to scrape the the cum off the walls and the ceilings. <laughs> Dude, still you could in smell there. it. Like, uh, everything could, smells like cigarettes. Oh, well, like, let's not but, really. You know, <laughs> well, you but know. the parking lot, when you see the documentary and you see like the owner standing in the lot. Yeah, it's now just overgrown shrubbery, and it looks like at one point they were trying to start a greenhouse or something. Yeah, and it's now just overgrown with you know crap homeless in people, it. like a homeless person's uh, hoarding something. Yeah, but uh, the they're fighting for territory. I got this corner. The but, but the building looks. I can't imagine what the inside looks like, but it it's held up like. So I would like. There's a market. For horny women, still, yeah, yeah. But the problem, I think, is we don't have enough money to pay for them. Well, I do, but um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But like now, there's like I was explaining to Dave, and I hope I'm not talking too much already. Like, no, no, you're not. Shut up. Get uh, in there. You know, back then in the '80s, you had if you wanted to get laid, you had to go out. Yeah. yeah. You know, whereas now, if a woman's horned up. Or a guy, she can go on Raya, Hinge. Uh, but you're swiping for hours. I mean, this was so great back then. You just showed up and it was expected. Well, I mean, a guy could get laid really easily if you timed it right. Right. Um, I don't know if it's too soon to tell this story. No, jump in. Because well, you were there. I mean, it's like Vietnam. You were either there or you weren't. Right. Um, <laughs> Is this? Would you say that Chippendales was your personal Vietnam? When they started moving around, because if you watch the documentary, right. you realize that uh, I think they got in trouble with probably underage, you know, selling booze to someone they shouldn't have. They didn't let black people in either. Uh, well, really? that's what took them down. Yeah, we'll get, yeah. yeah, and we'll get into that. But why don't you tell us about your initial experience? Well, my initial experience was uh, at Carlos and Charlie's, uh -huh. which uh, for you L.A local yokels that was what dublin's became it was dublin's when i came and that would have been 98 so i'm talking in the early 90s when after the black dude sued them for discrimination they literally went to nightclubs and did chippendales right and we'll get into that because that's discussed right. as well so my question is when they were doing that chippendales uh at the local clubs where else did they go besides carlos and charlie's um, I don't remember specifically, but it was places like Carlos and Charlie's, like Red Onion. Uh huh. I think they did it for a bit in the marina at the Red Onion, where it was called the Spread Onion, <laughs> just because <laughs> just animals. Uh, King Kings would go there. A lot of NHL players and I'm yeah. sure Lakers would go there because it was close to the Forum. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't get it. Yeah. Like, well, should, do you guys want to go there? Because I can take Let's you. There. Let's do it. Take you. Okay. There. 
Um, so let's dive in. Um, like I said, this is a four-parter. Each episode is like 50 minutes long. So um, this thing starts with episode one, which is called Take It Off. And, you know, the first image we see is the famous, iconic Las Vegas, welcome to Las Vegas sign. And then it slowly gets a little seamier and dirtier and takes us down to Fremont Street. And then we hear some people talking, and they're obviously sketchballs. And they're up to no good. And <laughs> the first one says, I was thinking, you know, what you could do, you could maybe with a hammer or something, you know, something nice and fast. And the second voice just laughs and he says, a hammer? And the first one goes, yeah, you know what I mean? Something real hard on the, you know what? And then go for the neck. And he's like, yeah, right. That's what I would do. So this is how this thing starts. We know that there's some creeps involved, but we don't know where this is headed. All we know is it's about the Chippendales. So the next scene, we see an FBI office in Las Vegas and we meet a retired special agent by the name of Scott Gariola. Now, we learn in July of 1991, and I had never heard this, and I'll be curious to know if you've heard of this before, Earl. Uh, someone walked into the FBI office and claimed that he just got back from London and he was hired to kill two members of a male exotic dance group. And he claimed he was hired and the plan was to inject two fatal doses of cyanide into these guys. And in exchange, he was going to receive $50,000. So Scott says, this is a little suspicious. And says, wait a minute, this is connected to a plot with multi-million dollars attached to it and a business called Chippendales. So my question is, had you ever even heard of this? I mean, I hadn't heard of the specifics like that, but I knew... Um, because of the two guys who started it together. Yeah. Uh, you know, like most things, I even saw it a little bit with Roast Battle. Like, <laughs> you know, I really did. Like, you know, how that show started, it was very similar to how Chippendale started. Yeah. Just two people had an idea. Yeah. And then once it takes <laughs> off, the arguments right. and the disagreements about who's owed more, you know, are they there to see the choreographer guy who right. was like designed the shows, the, the lighting, the, the dance moves, or is it the Indian dude who, in his mind, created? And we'll the get it. I'll get into those specifics. So I, I could, you know, I'd, I'd always heard of, you know, the murder for hire plot, um, but I didn't know the depth of it. Right. I had no idea. I never heard about any of this, and I'm kind of shocked that. You know, I never heard of this as much true crime as I listened to. So the doc takes us right in to the scene you were describing in the in the 80s. And it's just ripped guys at Chippendales. And the women are going fucking crazy. You know, they're literally sitting on the floors, which blew me away. I mean, I'm telling you, and, and I never went to the Chippendales. The original Chippendales was on Overland in Venice, which is a... Mar, Mar Vista, Culver City. Uh, yeah. If you're not familiar with LA, so the Carlos and Charlie's Chippendales, uh, it was like an ant farm of horny women. Right. Um, <laughs> and the only guy in there, uh, outside of uh, well, you know, you had the bartenders who were all ripped dudes. Yeah. Service was the MC, and uh, it, it, I, you couldn't imagine a room that was 
like beyond breaking fire laws. Yeah. Uh, so that's another uh, or fire uh, fire codes. Uh, code. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the let me just set the scene for those of you that don't know what a Chippendale is. You you picture a guy that's just ripped and cut. He's just glowing with a tan. He's got the bronzer on. And then, of course, they all wear black spandex pants. Sure. And underneath that, there's going to be three layers of G-strings. And then they have the, the cuffs around the the neck right. and the collar. Basically, Only. What, what's that? Only the well, cuffs around it the Well, it was neck. an homage to uh, Playboy, Hugh Hefner. Sure. Club. All right, the women right. there, Actually, they did that. that. Never put that two. Well, that's two why together. I'm here. We're gonna put more than that yes. together today, Dave. And I so, did uh, sneak into the Playboy Mansion twice. Oh, I yeah. I did, but I was working, and I remember sneaking away and grabbing a couple beers and going over to the monkey cages. Yeah. And just like pounding some beers and then getting back to work, and then I went in the grotto, of course, and then yeah. underground in all those rooms. But I will admit, it was my first year in LA, and I was cater waitering. That's all good. I mean, I remember uh, my friend Monty, who it's funny, he sells like $20 million homes now, and I'll tell a Hell real yeah. quick version of the story. Hefner had been married uh, or divorced for like six years. Uh, no, I'm sorry, married for six years, gets divorced, and he hadn't had the lingerie party for six years out of respect for his wife, I guess. <laughs> so this yeah, was right. the <laughs> first. What a guy, nicest guy on the earth. Uh, first, I don't know. Uh, Thank God the Me Too movement wasn't around this era. Dude, it was like the Why God. Not Me Too movement. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this was the first lingerie party they had had in six years. So every guy on planet Earth was flying into this sure. uh, to try and get in there. So me and Monty calls me up. He's a great bullshitter, dude. He, he could sell sand to a fucking Arab prince in the desert. Like he's just, he's just that guy. Yeah. And he calls me up about eleven at night. He says, Hey, dude. We're going to sneak into the lingerie party. I'm like, dude, there's no way we'll get in. It's, this is the first one in six years. It's going to be impossible. Yeah. He says, just put on your pajamas because that was the rule. You had to be wearing pajamas. Yeah. Love it. Uh, so we could go in there. There's 20 cars ahead of us, Secret Service type security at both sides of each car going, get the fuck out of here. You're yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the fuck out of here. So all, literally every car in front of us got told to hit it. And Monty pulls up and this pretty big like security. He was clearly the head guy. It's like he puts his head in the window. Monty's like, Yeah, slick back there, tell us we're good. And he's like, Enjoy the party, guys. And wow. it's just like it's so amazing. So we get up there. That's awesome. We're afraid to you know, get out of the car and the the valet's like, dude, guys, get in there, man. You guys are good. Nice. So we get in there, and the first person I see is Vince Neal from Motley Crue. I'm like, this is a good party. Yeah. Wow. When Vince Neal. Shout out to the devil. And then these three bimbos with one had bigger tits than the other were like, who are you? <laughs> and I told them I played in Kiss when they had the makeup on. So it was like a perfect, <laughs> perfect bullshit lie. Like, oh, I don't know what they look like. So. Yeah. So then Monty, of course, went headfirst into the grotto pool. I'm like, I'm good. Oh, shit. Like he, oh, yeah. I thought you meant to. Yeah. Maniac. Yeah. I remember being in there, and it felt like I was in a James Bond movie because it's still like 70s to this day with all the buttons and controls on the wall, and it, you feel like you're just on a movie set. It doesn't look real. Well, it's just like uh, I, I, I don't think I'll ever experience this again where the hot girls come up to you. Yeah. There weren't yeah. that many yeah. dudes at yeah. this party. It's probably I would say the ratio was 70-30. Wow. 
all of Half's horny buddies, you know, mm -hmm. Dr. Mark Saginaw, uh, Ron Smith, the celebrity, he owned that company with, with the celebrity impersonators. Somehow he was roped into Hefner's circle. Uh, Garth Fisher, he did all the surgeries for the Playmates. And then me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me and Vince Neil and Larry Elder. I, I don't mean to talk oh, politics, but <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. there. Larry Elder uh, it was dressed as King Tut. And uh, there's some bimbo walked uh, by us, and Larry Elder looks at me and goes, "Good luck with that kid." <laughs> That's why I voted for him. Yeah, known Larry. known white supremacist Larry Elder. No, well, he uh, hates black people. I've never seen a black so guy who hates blacks. It's a hell of a platform. Yes. What, what, what would you call that though? It's, I guess Uncle Tom. <laughs> I mean, technically speaking, I think it's like the definition. But, like, he is so funny to me, like, him and Leo Terrell. Now we're going off the rails. Yeah. All right. Let's get back to the murder. So these murders that we're oh, hearing shit, about. Oh, shit, there's murder involved? Yeah, I just talked about the oh, murder shit. plot, about the okay. two people. So we don't know who it is, but somebody was going to get injected with cyanide. Oh, right, 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 right. The right. attempted murder. Right. So this FBI agent basically claims this is the most bizarre murder plot he's ever investigated for the FBI. So titles come up like they you would typically do in the neon pink and blue. And we open on L.A. in 1982 over the classic song Ladies Night by who, Earl? Cool in the gang. That's right. So we're at the original West L.A. Chippendales. And the lines are around the fucking block. This blew me away. I mean, you hear about lines around the blocks, but they literally show the block and it just keeps going. And... Then they take us in the club. and there's lines, men, there's lines everywhere in that place, I bet. Oh, we're going to get to that. Men are literally strutting, but they're like doing this thing with their body. So like their dicks are, I mean, they're in their G-strings, but right. they're thrusting so much. You could see these dicks almost flying out. They're of the flopping. Yeah, they're flopping. And again, it's just packed. There's so many women there. And this is when we meet a woman named Nancy Dining, and she's like a, a regular and she says it was her favorite place, and it was where she took her girlfriends to experience a fantasy she's, she's never uh, was able to experience. And then we meet her future husband, who's one of the stars of Chippendales, Ooh. and his name's Michael Rapp. And do you remember The Perfect Man? I do. Did you ever uh, see The Perfect Man? Uh, you know, I might have at Carlos and Charlie's. Uh, might have seen him walking around, because he did look really familiar to me. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, they didn't let dudes in there right. during the performance. And I don't think too many guys really wanted to be in there. Well, it was Chippendales, actually. Well, according to Michael, it said he felt like a star and it made him feel like he could do anything. He said, at Chippendales, I'm, um, I'm untamed, I'm wild, I'm lustful, I'm all the things I want to be. And he was the star of The Perfect Man. Well, that's how I feel at the comedy store. <laughs> but, but that's the only thing I can literally wrap my uh head around and certainly i'm not seeing the comedy stores like prime chippendales but you know chippendales was you could if you were a hot horny housewife or a bachelorette party or a co college co-ed i mean it was really a i do remember that at the carlos and charlie's location it was a very broad age range of uh 21 year olds to 50 year olds yeah. So it, how was the puss at the comedy store these days? Is it getting better? <laughs> it's been it was been kind of slow there a little last uh, couple I don't years. Know what, it's been pretty good lately. Yeah, but, but it's like I, the last time I was there was maybe May. 
<laughs> well, joking. I only bring up the comedy store in regards to Chippendales because Chippendales was like the comedy store where you you know if you like a certain comic you can meet him after yeah. the yeah. set yeah. or girl yeah. A, yeah. A, a, if you're a guy and you want to meet I don't know Steph well and these guys and, these guys yeah. talk about like getting off stage and being bombarded by like 200 women and all all wanting their number yeah I mean I don't say I'm not gonna lie and say I've experienced that but when I'm in the yeah. main room sometimes and I, I do pretty well most nights. Uh, not every night, but most nights, you know, I've I get at least probably two or three audience members. Hey, how are you? you want a drink? You want you want to hang out at Saddle Ranch? You, you want to go, go up the street where I know where this curtain is behind a basically. Uh, <laughs> jerk I mean, curtain. I have gotten offers like that. Now that's not two hundred women, so it's not on the level of a Chippendales sure. dancer, but I uh, can somewhat uh, know how Mike felt. Yeah, like yeah. you. I went to uh, Costa Rica, and over there the prostitution's like legal. So there's no like, there's like a prostitution union almost. And there's now no, back to hold our on, story. real quick. That's how it is everywhere you go, though. In in these cities, that's like kind of known as like party cities. You go to the casino or whatever, and there's just girls trying to massage you, trying to grab your cock. Everything's because they're prostitutes. Yeah, but this is different. This it is, is free different. Sex. I get it, but I'm just saying, like being that feeling that women can kind of get, like when they go out, they're constantly being bombarded by men. It's kind of the same feeling with, but with women anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, at Chippendales, it was like literally like a cattle call for yeah. these women to see. Well, yeah, even the MC was a good-looking dude. Sure, like he was probably the worst-looking guy in the show, and he was still like, if you saw the MC on at the gym. Or I don't know at the post office you're like who's this hot guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, there's no uglies. Let me explain to you how it started. So basically, Chippendales was bought by a man by Steve Banerjee, and it wasn't called Chippendales at the time. It was called Destiny Two. Do you remember hmm. Destiny Two? I do. I heard about it. Never okay. experienced. So it. Destiny Two was a bar, and this man by the name of Steve Banerjee bought the place. And, you know, he's trying to figure out how to bring people in. And this is where it gets interesting. And we cross over into Hollywood because he hooks up with a guy by the name of Paul Snyder, who was a man who introduced Dorothy Stratton to the world of Playboy. So they were both from Vancouver, uh, B.C., and she was 19 at the time. I want to say he was in his mid-20s. And he feels like he hit the jackpot when he walks into this Dairy Queen and finds Dorothy Stratton. She's just a, a, beyond a smoke show. And he even takes her to prom. Um, they made a very famous movie about this called Star 80, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But this was the guy who went to Banerjee and said, I'm from Canada, and we have these things up north where it's all male dancers. You should try it down here. And they all think he's nuts. They're like, this is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. And he's like, trust me, it'll work. Now, meanwhile, Steve, he's experimenting with like mud wrestling nights <laughs> and crap like that. And he, I, I mean, there was a club that did huge business out here called uh, uh, the Tropicana. It's on Sunset and Western by the Home Depot. And it was the mud, it was where Vince Neal met his first wife. So it Holy was just, shit. it was, uh, like Chippendales in reverse, like these, play, it was all playmates who maybe had aged out, um, you know, models who they aged out, and guys would go to pay my, you know, Don Barris was the MC there, was he really? So mm -hmm. he would, 
he was really funny. I'd go, the bigger the bill, the bigger the thrill. And like he'd get these guys to just hunt, bid a hundred, two, three, four hundred dollars to wrestle with a playmate. Oh shit! Oh wow! To go wrestle with a playmate—that's yeah, yeah. fucking awesome. Well, it got pretty. I did it once. It you was, did. I did. My girl was hot. Like, yeah. I mean, they were perfect. Every well, one yeah. of them. Perfect. I yeah. think it was the reason this thing became such a phenomenon is you know they were in the right place at the right time and. Um, there's a guy there um, who became close with the owner, Bruce Nay, and he's a big part of this documentary. He becomes their lawyer and ultimately their fixer for a bunch of crap they got to deal with. And um, basically, Bruce says, it was a time rampant with drinking and drugs. The pill had just been invented and AIDS wasn't on anybody's radar. So that was another reason that this sex is so easy to get and such a, a marketable opportunity. Well, yeah, because, you know, you talk about AIDS in the early 80s. It was really... Uh, well, this is 1979. Well, I, yeah. But even then, it was yeah. really thought of as just a gay disease because yeah. the hot pockets of it were bathhouses in New York, right. San Francisco, and, and some in L.A. So it wasn't until, I think, what started happening was bisexual men started sleeping with women they would contact it and then they'd fuck a straight guy and then it just like yeah it's very much that's why i always compared covid to aids like we still <laughs> know God. but i mean like we still don't know how covid really started the, yeah and then spread quickly spread and we still don't know two years yeah. later yeah so aids was very much like that you know sure you, and once it becomes a thing where i mean if you're gonna go from gay to straight like, you know. Well, do you remember Sandra Theodore, quickly. the name? Does that ring a bell? The girl. She was Hefner's girlfriend for about five years. She lived at the mansion, and she was in the dock, and she had an interesting quote. She said, back then, it was an extremely sexual time, the way people dressed, the music, and everybody slept with everybody. Yeah, I mean, and, it was, I mean, it, it's, it's so hard to explain those times. Right. I mean, I had a guest, and this is not some <laughs> subtle way to plug my podcast, but on Inappropriate Earl, there was an episode with Jeffrey Mark, who uh, was a gay comic, nightclub singer, and he talked about fucking Freddie Mercury in a bathroom at a New York bar because he was just like, that's just what we did. Yeah. Like, you could fuck a probably the the greatest singer of all time at the mo and this was when queen was gigantic yeah you can fuck this guy in the bathroom at a new york bar it's just you can't i'm sure that stuff goes on to some degree sure. but it was just it's a wild time man. well when they were shaping this show in the beginning they didn't even have choreography or anything like that and it was just a contest to be like who was the sexiest guy and snyder was actually an mc there when he started and basically, they're doing this on the weekends, and then uh, they premiere the show in January of 79, and immediately they know that they're on to something. So Steve, it wasn't called Chippendales yet. Steve rebranded it as Chippendales because he wanted a classy name, so he took the name from the Chippendales Furniture Company. That was his idea of like giving it some panache and some, mm. you know, zazz. So... Again, um, Paul Snyder, who brought Dorothy Stratton down from uh, Vancouver, BC, he's the one that brought in the cuffs and all of that stuff. And um, what, do you, what do you call it? The collars as well. And 
then Hefner wants to come in. So Hefner actually went to the club. There were no men allowed. But of course, they made an exception for him. And he thought, he, I think he was humbled by it and he thought it was cool. So, you know, basically, this point, they were like, okay, we need a real MC. And then they hired this man by the name of Richard uh, Barsh. And before every show, he gets everybody chanting, take it off every night. So they start raking it in. I mean, they're just like, counting stacks of money they can't even like put it in the bank fast enough it's all cash it's all cash yeah and then the cops like you were saying sure enough they show up and they want to shut the place down because they tell chippendales you're holding illegal performances and what they did is the dancers they arrested the dancers Mm. for nudity and indecent exposure because they broke a law that the men were touching the women Mm. And you can't do that mm-hmm. if you're serving alcohol. Right. So no big deal. They write up a bunch of rules and they hire a beverage and alcohol lawyer. And then they just make an announcement before the show that says, you know, these are the rules. Right. Like basically you could, you could tip, a, tip but, us, but you can't put the money directly on our dicks. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, we need the, we need you to hand it to us and then we'll put it down our pants. What's the McConaughey line? I think Louie did it in one of his bits. The law says you can't touch but I see a lot of Rubeks out there or some shit like that yeah. from uh, the movie from Magic Mike. Well, it's like the prostitutes when you go to a prostitute's house now. They they say you, now. Have, to, you have to put the donation on the table. Sure. And, and then all time is, uh, all money exchanges right. for time and companionship. And I told the last one, yeah, yeah, that's, I know. I yeah. Know, this, this that's how, that's how they get, that's how they used to get right around like all the weed laws and stuff too. Yeah, right. Or if you want to have a like a party or want to throw some kind of event, you got to do the drink tickets. You can't like sell alcohol, but you can sell a ticket, and you have to give two tickets for a beer or whatever the fuck. Like if you want to have a private event, and but and it's also for, I think the dancers were fucking yeah no obviously sure and, I'm talking about minor loopholes, but like this so, I'm sure was crazy. You well, know, I, I yeah, think, and there was nudity. Uh, like you said, I'm sure it had something to do with liquor license, and yeah. you can't have some guy's fucking nine inch pole, you know, <laughs> getting jacked off in the VIP area. Yeah. Like, they don't touch on any of that in the documentary. Well, I think it was a lot like uh, there was another club. It had nothing to do with. Um, uh, you've all seen Boogie Nights, right? Of course. Yeah. You know Alfred Molina. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you've seen Wonderland, Eric Bogosian, they. Yep. They were playing the wacky Arab guy, Eddie yep. Nash. The Nash. The you Nash. can't fuck with the Nash. Can't fuck with who, the Nash. Uh, if you don't know who Eddie Nash is for kicks, he knew girls liked cocaine. So what he would do is before they come over to his house, he'd take a huge shit. And he'd be like, I'm not going to charge you any money for the coke, but you have to lick my ass clean. So, <laughs> Oh, Jesus. That guy must be a real hoot at the that's holiday That's crazy. Parties. But he was very much like Steve, like... Um, you know, in the Starwood, which was on Crescent Heights in Santa Monica, uh, and you could, st- they still kept the outlier of the, uh, they had like a steeple, like a, a Taj Mahal type. It, mm-hmm. It's that's still there. He just paid off the cops. Like, you know, sure. Motley Crue played there, David Lee, Van Halen, uh, Quiet Riot, like Rat, uh, the cars, Blondie, yeah, uh, and he there's Quaaludes, Coke. Uh, so I think there's a lot of parallels to uh, Chippendales and the Starwood because they were both doing the same payoff cops. Well, the cops was the biggest inspiration for Richard to create a theme. So that's 
the cop was one of the first characters that they created in the show. Yeah. I mean, because they got busted by the cops. Because everyone likes a sexy cop. If you're a chick, yep. there's nothing hotter probably than to have some sexy cop, you know, looks like, you know, Ellis from Die Hard. Uh, you <laughs> yeah, know, so if the you're great a- Hart Bachner. I was in junior high, asshole. Yeah. This is just like Vietnam. No, this is just like Saigon, huh, Slick? Slick. I was in Vietnam, ass- or I was in, yeah, junior high, junior asshole. Junior high, asshole. Well, you're right, because Sondra Theodore, the playmate they interview, um, she was like, they had this character Zorro, but she was like, it, it didn't work for me. She's like, I immediately went up to the cop and said, you're coming home with me. But again, it's just that like, hey, I love your work. Um, let's go home and fuck. I mean, that just doesn't happen now. It's I mean, like the no, place. It's, it's like the place to do it. But it's like, like the village people, which is obviously for, for probably the basically the gay version of Chippendales. You know, first character created was the cop. Yeah. The singer was uh, Victor Willis. Yeah. Uh, here's the crazy thing. This has nothing to do with anything. They say the falling man yeah. from 9-11, you know, that first yeah. oh, guy yeah. was oh, uh, Victor Willis's brother. What? Really? Because he worked in one of those towers, and they had narrowed it down to what that person was wearing. Whoa! Jumping. Uh, so you know, it's a but you know the village people. You know, you had the cops. That's wild. The, the, very the, Chippendale, the and they were before Chippendale. Oh yeah, the Indian, the construction guy, yep. uh, the leather daddy guys. They didn't really have a leather daddy guy in Chippendales, but um, maybe that's really the first costume was a, is a leather daddy because it was a thing. Uh, I guess not. I don't know. I'm bails a retarded. I bailed idea. on it. It's going to happen. I right bailed. So I would bet that Chippendale's <laughs> probably Snyder probably took some inspiration from the village people. Like, hey, these guys do well with gay men. What if we dress straight guys like that for hot chicks? Yeah. yeah. Well, they all thought he was crazy. They were like, this is the dumbest thing we've ever done, but we'll try it. And of course, I mean, six months later, it's every night. Because, it, you know, they started out with a couple of nights and then the lines got longer and they were just doing it every night. The interesting thing is that the neighbors got freaked out and they showed this in the documentary. They were all complaining because people were like fucking on their lawns, used rubbers all over their lawns. And then they said needles, which really blew me away. I mean, I guess I underestimated the amount of like needles and like that's that people were shooting coke, you know. Back then, it just didn't track for me, but that was one of the reasons why, you know, they were getting so many complaints. Well, that's what took down the Starwoods. It's it's funny. I never really thought about the parallels between the two. Uh, You know, if you ever drive by Santa Monica and Crescent Heights, it's all apartments that are around that building still. Now it's a Russian deli. Yeah. But I could only imagine Nikki Six and David Lee Roth and Van Halen fucking some groupie. and, And, oh, yeah, I'm... I wouldn't be too psyched if I was a neighbor here. Yeah. Well, one of the Chippendales that's featured in this, his name's Dan Peterson. He explains he he got hired as a host, and his job was to like greet the women, and then they show him like pushing in like a row of we- women in wheelchairs. Like everybody came. It didn't matter your age, and he even claims that one woman uh, uh, offered him twenty grand for his semen. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is eighties, buddy, too. Like, what was she going to do with it? She was going to inseminate herself so ah, she could have... That's a very specific process. I feel like $20,000 is a good good rate. But back then, it, there wasn't the scientific advances there are. So yeah. I'm sure it was like, literally, fuck me, come in me, and I'll... And that'll work. Well, Banerjee, at this point, he's spending over a million dollars a year on legal fees. 
Jesus. Well, yeah. if you ever go to Overland in Venice, where that where Chip the original Chippendales is, it's all homes and yeah. apartments. So I can only imagine the noise and the ruckus. Because uh, I, like I said, never went to that original location because I was 15, 16 years old. But I do remember driving by it on some because I was dating a girl in Culver City. And my my dad would literally drop me off at her house. And uh, the it was like, you ever see that Springsteen video for Born to Run Live where it's just that crowd shot as you don't even know where the end of the... Yes. Uh, that's what it looked like yeah. to me. Just hundreds of women. It wow. seemed like hundreds of well, women. Let me give you some context on the place. It, it Max capacity on the Overland Club was 299 people, but they were bringing in twice that. I mean... People, it was standing room only. So, like, they show a shot of the stage, and it's just tiny because there are women just sitting on the floor, rows and rows and rows, and the stage is so tiny because they were trying to get so many packed in there. So, at this point, this is like April 1980. Um, Snyder married Dorothy Stratton because her career started taking off. And, of course, he already gotten fired from Chippendales at this point. So, they ditched him. And then, of course, we know this great movie, which this this story uh, is detailed, called Star 80, directed by Bob Fosse. And if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. Stars Meryl Hemingway and Eric Roberts, who you and I both agree should have won an Oscar for this film. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> if you look at some of the movies that came out in 1980, you know, Star 80, very dark movie, yeah. Cruising with Al Pacino. Which is a very very dark movie, yeah. Um, especially if you can find the one with the forty minutes of footage they cut out, so they wouldn't get an X rating. Um, and then oh, a Thief with Michael Mann, not one of a, the my favorite films. Not a dark movie, but like it, yeah. it's very darkly lit and yeah, uh, gritty. So you know, I don't think the Academy Award would ever go to an actor for playing a sexual uh, freak. You think, you think Hef liked me? I but, got nervous around Hef. I don't know if I did a good job tonight. Oh, my favorite scene in Star 80, and I've always wanted to do a parody of it, is when he's talking to himself in the Speedos in the bathroom. Yes. Hi. Yeah. Paul Snyder. <laughs> and he's practicing how to introduce himself at parties. Hi. Paul <laughs> Snyder. Yeah. It's hey, how are you? Paul Snyder. And then he skips a beat and just looks at himself in the mirror. Ah, fuck you. <laughs> it's a dark fucking movie. Shades of Taxi Driver in that scene. Fuck all of you. Yeah. Well, the funny, and I told you this, the guy who plays his upstairs neighbor. He's a character actor. Stanley Kamel. Is that his name? Yeah. He's in everything from the 80s. He, was, he played, I mean, any younger people would know him as Luke. Wait, he was the, towards the end of 90210, Luke Perry was dating yep. Uh, a girl and she had a mob father and he was the mob yeah. father very good looking older gay dude i used to train people at this gym in west hollywood called workout warehouse and he I was, remember uh, it he uh, was always trying to fuck it's, yeah. that that sounds like it could be a gym and also a gay bar and also like a nightclub well i think it, it here's the funny thing you say that me and eric my uh chippendales buddy he once again Above Workout Warehouse was this <laughs> gigantic. It was a warehouse. Like, I remember. Yeah. 
And Where do you called, work out? There's a gay bar called Axis. Oh. But on Friday nights, they had lesbian night. Did they spell it X, like X-S? No, right. Okay. A-X-I-S. But Eric knew the door guy because the door guy was an actor. So he would let me and Eric in. So it's literally no dudes in there. Me and Eric and like three or four hundred lesbians. Oh, jeez. And the but you could always turn yeah. one or two. And uh, the door guy was like a huge black dude. He's like, "Hey, have a good time, Earl and Eric, but don't touch the girls." Yeah, I'm sure it was his voice was that much deeper that you had to go deeper too. Well, he was like, the, if you've ever seen the movie The Wildlife, um, with comedy oh store paid regular Angel Salazar, uh, <laughs> where's Hot Barkner, Hart Bachner uh, from uh, Die Hard, and. Uh, Sean Penn's brother. It was a ripoff of uh, Fast Times. Or, okay. Uh, not a ripoff, a loose sequel. To Fast Times. But with Chris Penn. Yeah. Oh. And there's a scene where they go to a really? strip club, and the, the huge black door guy says that line. And the huge black door guy in the wildlife, you might know him as Kevin Peter Hall, a.k.a. also known as The Predator. Oh, no predator. kidding. It's one of the few times you see the predator. Not being like, a predator. What he looked like. Yeah, so, interesting. Uh, now you can see a predator at roast battle probably every week. Well, <laughs> getting back to Dorothy Stratton and Snyder, for those don't, that don't know the story. So uh, Snyder was obsessed with Dorothy Stratton and making her a star. But he's hanging out at the Playboy Mansion. And Hefner's like, get this grease ball away from us. Get him to stop hanging out. And at this point, Dorothy... Uh, she does Miss August, I want to say, and then she gets Playmate of the Year, um, and she blows up, and then she gets a movie role in Bogdanovich's film. I can't remember what the name of it was, but they're shooting in New York. She falls in love with Bogdanovich, and at this point, she comes back to L.A. to break everything off with Paul, and as the story goes, all of her friends, including Hafter, said, do not go over there alone. And what does she do? She goes over to the West LA condo and says, I'm giving you half of everything I have, which is like 7,000. She had not had like $1,000 on her at the time. And then the roommate, the guy who played the roommate in the movie, he comes home, he thinks they're sleeping, doesn't knock on the door. And then the next day he knocks on the door and finds them both dead because Snyder raped her, blew her brains out, and then put the gun in his mouth and blew off his head. And you and I talked about this because I got deep into this years ago, and I did some deep diving. And according to what I remember, he had, and they show this in Star 80, he, he made a sex chair, and then he strapped her to it, and then had he blew her head off. Her eyeball was stuck on the wall, and then he had sex with her post-mortem. See, I'd never heard that before. Yeah. So, well, here's the weird thing. I was in the TV movie, The Babe Ruth Story. Were you really? Uh, just, I just played one of the Yankees because I looked like a, you know, when I had a flat or semi-flat top, I looked like a 20s, 30s baseball player. And uh, the, I think he played Branch Rickey in the movie was Bruce White's from Hill Street Blues. Oh, He's yeah, a little yeah. short actor. Yeah. He played... Uh, Paul Snyder in the TV movie. Correct. Which I believe... Was Jamie Lee Curtis was in it. Yes. That. Yes. I believe it was called Death of a Centerfold. Yep. Um, so I, I talked to him a few times about it just because that was my first time ever on a movie uh, 
of of any movie uh, set, and so there's a lot of downtime when you're doing a movie, even a TV movie, because it was a big, uh, you know, there was they were trying to beat the John Goodman Babe Ruth movie, mm-hmm. so oh, they were God. really. I love those. Uh, and Mark Tinker was the producer of of my Babe Ruth movie, so it was a pretty big deal, and like. God. Even Bruce Weitz was like, "Yeah, Eric did a much better job than I did." Uh, I mean, he should have won the Oscar. He, he, his performance is beyond engaging. Yeah, it's just it's sad that uh, and think how that would have changed his career if he would have won an Oscar. Oh, absolutely. Because then he kind of like, you know, he did the Pope of Greenwich Village, which is a great movie, and then uh, you know, Best of the Best was kind of the the start of the downfall. Oh shit! Yeah. Fucking uh, my- pop it, Tommy, pop it. Well, Bye-bye. continuing on the Stratton thing, uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this. I'm sure you do, Earl, because you know everything 80s. <laughs> so at this point, um, uh, Bogdanovich is beyond distraught, and um, he has Dorothy's daughter, Louise, move in with her. And she comes down. She's eight years Dorothy's junior. So she's like 12. And she moves in with Bogdanovich, and then Bogdanovich writes a book about Dorothy. And more importantly, his movie gets released to a very small distribution. So he sunk all of his money into a wider release of the film to honor Dorothy. He went bankrupt. He had to sell everything. But he was obsessed with her. And then he later married uh, Louise. They were married for like 12 years. Yeah, get, that, get that guy into L.A. comedy. Like, <laughs> He'll with, fit in right with that fucking, perfectly, right? I mean, but it was such a different time where <laughs> shit like, you did that now, people would be like, dude, that's creepy as fuck. Yeah. But back in the 80s, I mean, it's just a different era, man. Yeah, like, there's somebody it, told Jeff Ross that. Well, you said it, I didn't. They uh, per- And do you remember the guy in Star 80 that portrayed him? He was the guy that played Robin on Cheers. Do you remember his name? I that, can't. Oh, that played Bogdanovich. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. His name's um, escaping me. But the, it was just such a different era back then. You know, yeah. it, it was just, I mean, I was a kid back then, so I didn't really appreciate the time. You know, it's like. You're just the, wondering what, why does everything smell like cigarettes? I don't know why I said that again, but, but yes. even like well, third time. <laughs> but that's <laughs> Matt. But that's all I remember. I just remember keep running into the youth. ground, Dave. It'll hit. It'll hit at some I, point. Dave, when do I you was... have any comedy background at all? <laughs> Zero. Oh, I love it's it. Like, now, I could, now I, I won't. No, I'm an open micer. That's the joke. Yeah. Do you do comedy? Though? Yeah, yeah. Don't, oh, you do do, do comedy. I don't. Not do very comedy. well. I'm he a, shows like, up. Where do you go? Oh man, I I was just doing Bert's back room before it was something different. Ha ha! I'll do one, or um, I'll do the chateau every once in a while. That place Stop is right. Try to do the. Uh, I've been signing up sometimes for the potluck, but I haven't been consistent for it, and I've never gotten called. Like, I've so never gotten you, emailed back for it. Would you say well, done keep it in the at past it, though? Huh? Keep at it though, because oh, it, it, it's the fairest. No, I'm talking about the comedy store potluck. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the oh, fairest it's ever too. been. It's very. It's randomly selected. Sure. So, how many times a week do you go up? And I know we. Oh, it's been. It. For, I haven't even done it. In, months i love it i love the last it. gig i love that grind the last gig it's not uh, even a grind like i've i've kind you of canceled on me i gave you a gig i kind of like I re- i've been like i retired from open mic scene i don't know but it's there, just bro. i mean dude it's just it's impossible right now there was a couple years where i had a nice little groove every night i was or every couple of nights at least what do you do for work i'm a graphic designer and okay. cataloger for a high-end furniture company okay. work on their web it nerd okay Let's but see. yeah Sorry, guys. 
There's no apologizing. Go on, on continue. All right. So the club's expanding. It's booming. I should time just said, get, no, I don't have a comedy background. I it's time said, uh, to expand. So what happens? Banerjee, Steve, he hires a man by the name of Nick DeNoya. Nick, at the time, was a producer, children's TV producer in New York. And he had uh, a show called Unicorn Tales. I was curious to know if you ever remember this show, because I don't. I never watched. I think I was into Hello Larry at the time with McLean Stevenson. Okay, good call. That's good. It was a good show. So basically, our resident MC goes from Paul Snyder to Richard, and then Richard gets bounced out, and Nick DeNoya takes the help. And Nick transforms the show from contest and a couple of characters to like a complete Broadway type show. So that's when Chippendales goes big. Now, he, uh, uh, Richard, they show him in the dock and he says he got pushed out and he's very emotional about this. He's upset and he says, you know, according to him, he's a believer in karma and both Nick and Steve paid for it in the long run. So there's a little foreshadowing in, in the dock as far as that concern is concerned. Now, here's the pivotal moment that changes Chippendales forever. So one night, one of the dancers, Dan, he goes out to dinner with Steve and Nick, and they go to a diner in West L.A., and Nick convinces Steve, I will take you to New York and be, make you the biggest successful show in New York, but in return, I want the touring rights to the Chippendales dancers in perpetuity. And he drew it up on a fucking napkin. Hell yeah. So at the time, Steve doesn't even know what the word perpetuity means. Mm -hmm. So he's like, yeah, sure. That sounds like a good deal. And that's how episode one ends. Now, episode two is titled Engulfed in Men. And I think you can see where we're going here. (laughs) So Nick's quoted as saying that men are primal creatures and turned on by flesh and women are turned on by personality. And that's why Chippendales aren't sex objects. They're total human beings or else the night doesn't work. And then we see Michael Rapp lubed up on stage. <laughs> and they, they show like a side angle. So you see it's like G-string. And it's his dick is so big and pushing out. Like you can see his pubes hanging out. Yeah, He did have a big dick. A massive hog. So <laughs> Bruce, the lawyer, um, he, he says, you know, Nick was a New Yorker. He had a, a big choreographer resume. And more importantly, he had the charisma to front a sexy brand. And he also had the connections in New York to find them a club. So we see Nick. He's on like the Joan Rivers show. He's introducing the Chippendales. She calls them pecs on parade. And this is what gets Chippendales out into the mainstream. And according to Bruce, the terms of the napkin agreement stated, like I said, if Nick did this and secured the club, he gets the license to take them on tour forever. And according to Bruce, he says, this is what ultimately leads to all this chaos and murder. So it was essentially the demise of Chippendales, that that napkin deal. So did did the napkin deal ever get like solidified in like an actual deal later on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like soon later. In other words, whenever all... Okay, continue. Okay. <laughs> just want to make sure he even gives up on his questions. <laughs> yeah, I know he's the best. So in other words, uh, fuck it, just continue. It, it's yeah, the best. It's so easy. So at this point, we see the Chippendales. They're making all the rounds on all these like Sally Jesse Raphael shows, 
And, you know, the women can't believe that what they're seeing. And, of course, it's a huge promotional tool to get these people and get asses in their seats. Sally, and then, Jesse, oh, forget it. And then in the background, they start showing burning buildings. You know, and this is what basically, um, you know, led to the arson attempts. But they don't explain right away who's doing it or why. Mm. And we'll, that'll come up a little bit later in the show. So, anyway, Nick is t- uh, practicing with the dancers in L.A. He creates this huge show. He gets them to New York, and, of course, that just takes off. And the New York club sat 600 people, so it's twice the size. Hell, yeah. So um, Nick find, found a, a place on 61st and 1st. It was called Maggie's. No, Maggie at the time. And, again, they were kind of doing what you were talking about, Earl, in the beginning as they were hosting, like Carlos and Charlie's was, just to give them a test run. Well, Nick takes this like full Broadway production. There's lighting cues, there's dancing cues, there's wardrobe, ensemble dancers. Uh, Roger Menashe, one of the Chippendales at the time, he said it was Chippendales on steroids. But I also think what kind of started to change the vibe of Chippendales was, it's my opinion, and if, you know, I know a gay dude when I see one, like, Amen. I think they also started hiring gay dancers, mm. like for the really, I you know I have no proof, sure. but you know if you look at the OG group of Chippendales guys at the Overland mm-hmm. location, they were you could tell they were just straight horned up dudes. Yeah. Who oh thought, yeah, well the Michael Rapp guy, yeah, he literally says I grew up in East LA and all I cared about was working out and going to the gym, and. He saw an ad for Chippendales. He goes in and he sees Steve and Steve's surrounded by stacks of money and he's just counting the money. And he looks at him and he says, you're hired. Just like that on the spot because he was working out just to try and get sex. But I think uh, when they went to New York and they developed more of a Broadway, um, you know, dancing, choreographed moves, very few straight guys can dance like that. It's true. Really? It's a good you point. Think? A great Listen, point. there's some great straight dancers yeah but if you look at the majority of dancers on broadway uh it's another level and i'm talking about tony award winning plays they're all gay dancers right right right, most choreographers but see i feel like this is different because these guys didn't set out to be broadway dancers they took jobs as male strippers and then a phenomenon created and they were the guys that were pushed into the spotlight to become this show I think that too, but I think when they went to New York and, and it was much more an emphasis of, you know, dance and almost like a Liberace, Elton John right. type vibe. You, no straight guy can dance that well. Sure. I'm sure there's a few. Like, right. Can't say I know what you mean. But well, the problem with this is that Nick has this reputation for being pushy and abrasive. And they interview, do you remember when they interviewed Eric Gilbert? who, according to the documentary, he was the Chippendales creative director from 83 to 91. And I'm thinking, wait, isn't Nick the creative director? But I, I don't know. That's his title. But he said this. He said, Nick was a drama queen, and he just liked to get in your face over stupid shit so he could be the A-dog. He liked to get on these dancers like they were his little bitches. He's like, we're not doing cats here, you know? It's not fucking Hamilton. It's a fucking burlesque show. This is Eric talking and saying... It's a burlesque show for women, and most of them are so fucking drunk, they don't care how these guys are dancing. Uh, And then he says, I'm sure you're going to interview someone else that thinks he's a god, but Nick was just a dick. He was just a real mouthy dick. 
So the problem is Nick's creating enemies, not only with Steve, but with the dancers. So this is when, you know, Michael Rapp blows up in New York as the star, uh, uh, as the perfect man. His wife, who he met at the club, moves out there with him. Um, and the opening night in New York was October of 83, and it sells out immediately. And I thought this was interesting. Did you know what the big hit number was for Michael Rapp? A perfect man. Yeah, it was, he's lip syncing to This Kid Is Hot Tonight by Loverboy. Okay. Well, Loverboy was huge back in that. You know, you got to understand, like, you know, you see Loverboy, and they're still touring, by the way. And uh, a fascinating thing about uh, Loverboy is the bass player uh, disappeared on a fishing trip 27 years ago. Really? They never found him. And I see, I have a conspiracy. I sound like Tripoli now. <laughs> I have a conspiracy theory that he's alive. He just got sick of playing Working for the Weekend. What was the song <laughs> that they played in Wonderland? Johnny would have mixed up and it came out to LA. You know, what is that yeah. song? It's a huge 80s song, but it was, this, it was the opening song in Wonderland. I, you know, I'm drawing a blank right now, but, you know, I, I think that. Don't could, you know that you are a shooting star? Is that Loverboy? Because that's the song. I think it is. They yeah. had some hits, man. Yeah, they did. Their problem was working for a weekend was so massive that anything they did after that. Although they did do a, Mike Reno, the singer of Loverboy, did a duet, Almost Paradise, which was a pretty big hit. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I could see the, the hit song of Chippendales being a Loverboy song at yeah. that time. Well, uh, this is also when they started with the calendar. So the first year of the calendar, it's 1981. They crank out 100,000 copies, and then they're doing millions the next year. And... These calendars were like the biggest fucking Ooh, thing. Yeah, that's right. The calendar. They start merchandising. They this. might have popped. Well, I guess it would start with women. Some kind of like swimsuit edition, Playboy calendar. I wonder what was like the first calendar hit. It, oh, it was probably Playboy. Playboy. Like, but so you got to yeah. understand, like in, in this time Fireman. frame, eighty six, the internet. Like now, I don't think a calendar would sell. No, of course not. Because, no, you no, know, no, you yeah. could go on a thousand websites and see a hot looking dude or hot looking girl. Uh, but back then, you know, a calendar was definitely uh, some motivation. Um, These guys are motivation. going to events, and there's ten thousand people, women, showing up to buy calendars. Yeah, that's I how mean, big this was, and they're just, autographing. You got to go out calendars. and get it, dude. That's just a, a different era. You have to go out. Did you know that they also made sexy exercise tapes? Oh yeah, they were pretty bad. I remember they were like, well, that's when the height of the aerobics craze, right? The Jane Fonda show. I would say from '83 to maybe '87. Um, you know that you had that John Travolta movie, Perfect, Perfect, which was filmed at the gym I worked at. Yeah. By the way, three of the Chippendales were in Perfect. Oh, in I can believe that. Yeah. Well, I also became friends with Nick the Dick, who, if you know who, uh, if you've ever seen the Tom Hanks movie Bachelor Party, and I still talk to him. He, they went to Chippendales. They yes. went to the uh, real Chippendales yeah. on Overland and Venison did the nightclub scene where Nick the Dick puts his dick in a hot dog and Tom Hanks's uh, future mother-in-law is like, is that the foot long? And uh, Nick the Dick <laughs> goes, and then some. <laughs> so uh, still friends. A shout out to Brett Baxter Clark. They cranked out playing cards, sexy lingerie, sexy jeans, coffee cups, and even... Stuff to animals. I mean, can you imagine looking at a guy's hammer on your morning cup of coffee? 
You know, it's just a different era, man. Yeah. You know. It's a gag gift. Yeah, I guess. Literally a gag. So they're making so much money. Steve even says he didn't have enough dirt in his backyard to bury it. Because uh, <laughs> a lot of these businesses were cat like Mitzi. All cash. Uh, you know, when they yeah. had the uh, Vegas Comedy Club, uh, they said there would be some weekend she would drive from Vegas to her home in the, by the comedy store in Hollywood with like, Hundred grand and just a duffel bag because really? it was all yeah. cash. Yeah. yeah, fuck. Yeah. Well, this is when Michael yeah. Rapp literally becomes a celebrity just for doing a five minute dance routine called "The Perfect Man," and he says his goal was to take you on a sexual journey, and uh, he's going to engulf you in six foot four inches of man. He says, "I'm just about sex. I was made for sex. I want you to feel lust." I want you to lust after me as much as I lust after Jesus you. Christ. He says at this point he felt like the king of New York. Um, and of course, Nick, he's taken all the publicity and he's becoming famous in his own right. And Steve is the guy behind the scenes. And it's revealed that he had a stutter. He didn't speak English very well. He was Indian. And he's so like um, jealous. He hires a PR firm to coach him in interviews. That was horrible. And he bombed. Worse than Dave. They did like, <laughs> no, that's impossible. Right? Dude, <laughs> they did impossible. a test interview. Yes. Where they filmed it. And, uh, you know, some people are just good on uh, interviews. You know, uh, you and I are veteran podcast guests and, and producers. Dave's, uh, you know, he's like the Steve Vanity of, of podcast yeah. guests. Like, according stuttering through shit yeah. giving up halfway on questions yeah, <laughs> according to eric he bombs and he has zero charisma well but it goes to uh like uh, you know this has nothing to do with what we're talking about but in a yeah. way it does uh, i got sean avery the hockey player his first time ever doing stand-up at the comedy store saturday night it's any crush probably act room he literally had never done stand-up before and he killed. Yep. Like he was probably, I would say me and him had the best sets that night. And you think that's crazy. Earl, you've been doing comedy 22 years. And a guy who's never done it before had the same set you did. And he did like some people, Sean has it. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but you know, uh, Steve did not have. And not only did he not have talent, he didn't have an eye for talent because he would bring in guys that he wanted to bring in. And Nick would just immediately reject them. And not only that, Nick would dress down Steve in front of the entire Chippendales crew. And like he had no backbone. So brown eye for talent. A brown eye for talent? Yeah, that's right, Keep him going, dude. Yeah, did you ride, you on, did you ride on Undateable? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, again, according to Michael Rapp, people are referring to Nick as the king of Chippendales and the creator of the phenomenon. And that's when Steve loses his mind. And that's when Michael thinks that all the success is going to Nick's head as well. So in 84 in LA, they actually start getting backlash and they show a woman on the Phil Donahue show and she's middle aged, and she walks out and Donahue's trying to track her down. And she's like, why are you leaving? He's like, why are you leaving? And she's like, I didn't know that this kind of like filth was going to be on today. And it doesn't stop there. So what happened is this is when the firebombings started. And the, the Chippendales wasn't getting firebombed. Other clubs that were competing 
with Chippendales oh. were getting firebombed. Well, it's like any hit TV show, any hit stand-up show, any hit um, anything that can be ripped off. I'll say it again: roast battle. Yeah. Right now, there's. Uh, I'll name the shows just to give them some publicity. These open micers got to have somewhere to perform. Yes, you got roast battle, the OG show. Then you've got battle roast. Then comic wars. Now uh, roast league. Like, and it's all the same shit. They're just ripping off what Brian Moses created. Right. With a little help from me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so I can only, you know, because you can't really, you could trademark the name Chippendales, but at the end of the day, yeah, you can't, chi- you can't. Uh, trademark male dancing yeah right. so yeah. It, it's uh you know that's why thunder from down under is called thunder from down under it's, it's it might as well be called chippendales right yeah. right well at this point steve fires nick because he just doesn't want to deal with it anymore and um this is when nick exercises his right from the napkin deal to take chippendales out on the road and that's what he does and that is even a bigger success than either one of these clubs so you know, Nick is pissed at Steve. Steve is furious with uh, Nick, but they're still making tons of fucking money. And it's just getting out of control. All this cash, it's everywhere. So the um, the breakdown was a 50-50 split from the touring rights. Now, the original napkin deal said Nick gets everything, but they must have worked something out. And the documentary doesn't make this clear, but they do make it clear that Nick is still giving Steve 50% of the gate from the tour minus expenses. So they're playing to 2,500 seats a night on the road. All right. So this is like so much fucking money. And Steve is pissed because he feels like he got suckered from the napkin deal. So episode two ends with a 911 call reporting a murder in New York city. And then three begins. It's called money after money. And we find out that that person that was murdered in New York was Nick DeNoya in his office on 40th Street in Midtown Manhattan. So we meet the detective, Mike Geddes. He's the New York NYPD detective. And he responded to the scene. What happened is a gunman walked, uh, took the elevator up to the 15th floor. He walks into the office and he says to a guy, hey, are you Nick DeNoya? Well, the guy that answered was not Nick DeNoya. He's like, no, he's down the hall. So the guy that says, I'm not Dick DeNoya, he gets up to go take a piss, and then he's in the pisser, and he hears a gunshot, uh. and then he comes out, sees somebody going down the stairwell, and walks in and finds Nick dead with a bullet to his head. Fuck. So, of course, the Chippendales, they're on the road in Indianapolis, they hear of all this, and of course, the, the show must go on. But that's <laughs> the crazy thing about back then, you could do something like that, yeah. whereas now, there's probably... I don't know how the killer got away, whether it was a car down the block or just ran three blocks. There'd be 50 cameras you could pull. Yeah. But back then, there's no cameras, so it was a great time to kill someone. Yeah. And uh, at this point, they interview a dancer um, by the name of Reed Scott. And interestingly enough, he spells his name Reed, like read a book, right. which I've never oh. seen in my life. Yeah. Um, he didn't think a that... A book, right? You never see one in your life. What's that? Because you're dumb. Okay, I'll keep going. This guy's killing it. <laughs> He's All crushing right. himself. Gotta fill the time sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes it's best just to not talk to fill yeah, the time. Uh, you're right. Especially that. when I'm doing narrative uh, work. So anyway, uh, Reed Scott says there's no way that Steve could have done this because he was so mousy and intimidated by Steve. 
he would never be able to pull this off. So the cops look into it. They can't find any criminal record in Nick's background. They check his associates. They're all clean. And Michael Rapp says, you know, there would have been a lot of people that would want to have killed him because he was so difficult to work with and of his abrasive personality and rubbing people the wrong way. But again, no evidence, no fingerprints, no pictures. Like you said, no video evidence. All they had was the eyewitness account from a gentleman by the name of Will Mott. So Nick's assistant, Candace, she says it's the opposite, that the cops did not do their due diligence because she says she's on the road and none of her dancers were interviewed and she wasn't even interviewed. At this point, Bruce... Uh, the lawyer behind Chippendales, he gathers 40 grand as reward money. And he goes to Steve and says, hey, do you want to chip in and make this reward bigger so we can catch Nick's killer? And Nick says, absolutely not. I should pay the man that killed him. He did me a favor. Oh. And you're like, oh. okay, that's cool. Uh, nothing suspicious about that. So the case goes cold. And, you know, they're waiting for a witness to come forward. And it never did. So when Nick died, he had no will. So everything went to his siblings, and his siblings turned around and sold the rights back to Steve. So at this point, Steve owns everything. So did you catch this? There was a jingle, and I, I rewound it a couple of times, but the jingle was, Chippendales is the place to meet. Uh-huh. Ladies in the driver's seat. Was that, do you remember hearing that on the radio? I think Desmond Child wrote it. Uh, no, I'm, uh, I don't, I got to be honest with you. I don't recall hearing Chippendales commercials. They were so successful out here. They didn't have to do commercials. So right. I don't know. Uh, maybe that was New York yeah. to, to help get them going. But like it was the perfect business in L.A. Because I never saw a billboard. It, it was the ultimate word of mouth. Uh, you know, hey, here, have your bachelorette party here. Have our bachelor party here. So, uh, yeah. You know, so I don't, I don't remember that. Well, Steve takes it global. So they start going to Europe. And according to Michael, these places are so big, there are women with binoculars watching them from, like, balcony, you know. They're playing, like, 4,000, 5,000-seaters. Um, and this is weird because Eric, the creative director, he recalls Steve walking into his office one day saying how sad he was that Nick was gone. Um, again, rap is the big star in New York. Uh, he's on, he's on the Geraldo show and he goes on Geraldo and says, I live the perfect life. Um, I would never cheat on my wife. <laughs> Well, anyone who says that's cheating on their wife. Exactly. Especially first. Dude. So his wife finds a, a phone number in his pocket and calls the woman up <laughs> and busts him. Meanwhile, this guy's banging every chick he can. He said he was getting 200 phone numbers a night, and he would do coke every night. He'd go bang the chick, and he said, as soon as I climaxed, I would feel extremely guilty and then just rush home. So... Um, the club um, is the, the L.A. club at this time. It's still receiving complaints from the fire department for overcrowding. This is when they get sued for gender discrimination oh. for refusing to admit men into the club. Oh. And as if things couldn't be any worse, what <laughs> happened is a guy wanted to go in. You know, keep in mind, after 10, you were allowed to go in because the oh, show. I know. I know that. <laughs> yeah, you knew the rules. After midnight. So a black man gets refused entry by oh. a bouncer. Well, the black guy just happens to be a clerk 
for the local district court judge. Oh. And then Steve, he gets sued for racial discrimination. And according to Bruce, Steve never set out to become a nightclub owner. He wanted to be the next Hugh Hefner. And he told the doorman, you have to refuse black men entrance because he believed black men would scare away all the white women. Oh, God. They'd probably attract him. <laughs> yeah. To be honest. Yeah. yeah it's true. So the last podcast we did was... Big black dude. Didn't bomb on that one. But I bet you Steve just grew up prejudiced against black people. Like, I'm sure in India, where he grew up. Yeah. uh, To my knowledge, they don't, there's not a lot of African Americans there. Yeah. So he probably just, his racism really sunk the club, at least the LA club. It did. And this is when they lost their liquor license. And they had to close the club down. Which and, is the lifeblood. Yeah, right. I'm stating the obvious to you guys, but yeah. for you people who don't understand the club business, the the, the booze. <laughs> and I got, because Sean Avery owned a bar in New York. Yeah. And he broke it down for me. Like, you're selling a, a whiskey shot for uh, 10 bucks. You know, the whole bottle of whiskey costs you maybe 60 bucks. But you're getting... 16 pours. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you're tripling your money on every bottle in there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so if you lose your liquor license, one, it's very hard to get it back. Right. Yeah. And if you do get it back, you'll go bankrupt because I, I can only imagine how much it costs now. Back then, I think it was some backroom deals and, yeah, you know, like they, Eddie Nash from the Starwood. Yeah. The Nash. The Nash. Don't fuck with the Nash. Oh, dude. When I brought, I won't say the guest name, but on Inappropriate Earl, I brought Eddie Nash up and the person shot me and looked like, I don't want to talk about it. Oh, shit. Like, he's still. Where was he murdered? Well, no, he died. Oh, I thought he got murdered. No, no. What happened was, and I know this has nothing to do with Chippendales, but uh, John Holmes, the porn star. Yeah. He ripped Eddie Nash off with those four guys. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, remember the guy, you'll get this actor. He's the one in that movie. He's like, you're telling me John Holmes was in the room. What was that guy's name? Great Ted Levine. Thank you. That's wow. what, oh, that was Ted Levine. Bill, Bill, uh, Buffalo Bill. From I didn't know that was Ted Levine. That's in Wonderland. Now, yeah, not yeah, Boogie yeah. Nights. Uh, so Eddie Nash gets pissed. His bodyguard, Greg Dials, who was a 350 pound black dude. who was like a karate champion. He sees John Holmes the next day randomly. I'm sure they all went to the same places with one of Eddie Nash's either bracelets or rings on. Mm-hmm. So they clearly knew who had done the robbery. Oh, God. So Eddie Nash makes John Holmes <coughs> take Greg Dials and some of Greg Dials' hoods uh, to the house where all the robbery, uh, robbery people were. And that's where they killed them. And they made... John Holmes put his hand on in blood. Uh, yes. Uh, so they knew he was there so Eddie Nash could have something on him. Yeah. Now here's the crazy thing, and this is just L.A. history more than Chippendales. The lead detectives in the John Holmes murders were uh, Tom Lang and Phil Van Hatter. Tom, which were the O.J. guys. You know, so yeah. um, wow. there, there is a great youtube video where they survey the wonder the actual wonderland crime scene yeah and it's with phil van adder and dude even seasoned cops were like i've never seen do you think holmes contributed and actually took a swing i mean it's hard to say i mean he probably was from what i understand about him he was kind of a pussy yeah so i'm sure that gregory dials and his 
his uh, accomplices did the murders, and then Nash told him, make sure there's a, a sign that John was there so yes. we can have that over him. Yeah. Because I don't think John Holmes was in the system. He had not committed any uh, He had not been caught for any crimes. Oh, right. I see. So I think Nash was like, if you probably was like, if you ever fuck me over, I'm going to stay. He just wanted a. Whose handprint that yeah, was. Yeah. He wanted a, a, a get out of jail free card. He so, wanted blackmail. Now yeah. you're 23 and me will get um, you busted. All right. So back to the. Did you hear that one? He got he, had, he got in a. 23 and me, Joe? Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, I didn't hear it. Usually but I'll he hear it on playback. On. He usually has his headphones on. Yeah. So, so he won't hear it on playback because he mumbled it. Yeah. Okay. Well, then you know what? Can you just make a note and delete it? Sure. So none of us <laughs> no, no, leave hear it, it in. <laughs> leave it in. Okay. So don't forget, at this point, they need to find a new club. They found a place on Wilshire. I don't recall where, but then they moved to Carlos and Charlie's. And that is. That's where what, I come what year would story. that have been? I mean, 90? I was going there. Oh boy, uh, this was fairly late into the '80s. It might have even been '90, um, because it was. Because here's the thing about that intersection: we'll call it the Sunset Curve. Yeah, it wasn't an intersection. Um, across the street was Roxbury, which was the hottest nightclub in. Is that where Miyagi's is now? Yes. Well, okay. no, it's where Pink Taco is. Pink Taco. Now. Oh yeah. yeah. So, oh, okay, I see. Um, Amagi's. Um, Later, well, Roxbury became Amagi's, but Roxbury was where like uh, Shannon Doherty would go, yeah. uh, Paris Hilton, and so it was the wildest. You could literally walk across the street to Carlos and Charlie's. Yeah. So it was just uh, very economical on your gas mileage. Yeah. Um. So it, it was. It, it's hard to explain. You had to be there. Of, of Roxbury was just uh, three levels of. Uh, just the worst human behavior. Like, well, I, Dublin's was the first bar I went to in L.A., and I remember walking in there, and it was like, you know, the place, four stories. Yeah. And it was just wall-to-wall women, you know, good amount of guys, too. But coming from New York at the time and seeing a, a bar that big and that crazy impact, I was like, that was my first local place I would always go to. Well, I would go to Roxbury on non-Carlos and Charlie nights in my sweatpants, and I would dry hump girls on the dance floor, <laughs> and I'd come like a madman. Yeah. And then, <laughs> back then, it was cool. But, um, it sounds insane to say that, but back then, it was just like, believe me, there was a lot of guys in sweatpants on that dance floor. Yeah. And you'd shoot a load in your pants. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd walk around with a huge wet What's spot. Because I always wore gray sweats. Yeah. So there'd be like a pool a load <laughs> it, it looked like my pants were camouflaged uh, um, and it was just it, it's a different era like now you get kicked out of the club yes like, sure. dude what's you can't walk around with that can't stain even, on your pants yeah. can't even come in with the back then nobody pants. cared yeah. door guys were hooking up with chicks in the ballet some guys rolls royce i mean it was just it was literally the wild west of sexual depravity well at this time they started getting knockoff yeah, impersonators. Did you recall any of the knockoff Chippendales? Because this was the the people that were getting firebombed, but they would pop up like roaches, they said. I don't remember what it was called, but I know at the Marina Del Rey location of the Red Onion, uh, it was called the Spread Onion. Oh, so gross. And uh, they had uh, exotic dancing there. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, they popped up everywhere. They were literally like Starbucks. I mean, Chippendales, obviously, 
was the one everyone wanted to go to. But like, if you didn't want to go to Sunset Strip, you'd be like, well, there's this place in the valley. It, it's got male dancers. Let's just same principle. But well, there was one group that actually did well, and it was Adonis, and they focused on this in the film. Do you remember Adonis? I never went, but I uh, I drove by it several times. I mean, it, it was. Uh, but they got there a little late to the party. It did do well, but. Yeah. I think by the time it started that, you know, Chippendales or it, it kind of was like 80s metal in 92. Like yeah, it yeah. was like still around, but the halcyon days are over. Right. Um, well, it was a huge success. They pre-sold 200 shows. This is Adonis, 500,000 seats. And Steve finds out about this and loses his fucking mind. And according to Eric, the creative director, this is when he became bipolar and paranoid as well. He thinks most of the erratic behavior was driven by cocaine, which, come on, it's the 80s. That tracks, right? Uh, Eric says he would come in really clogged up and bitchy, and cocaine pushed him to a point where he didn't give a fuck. It became more of a Mr. Toad's wild ride in paranoia land. Now, I don't understand that reference. Mr. Toad's wild ride? I think it was a Disneyland. uh... Yeah. Right, but okay. you know, you, right? you see that with any rip-off shows, like uh, you know, it's just you know, the original's the best, and, and then usually the first series competitor's pretty good. Yeah. But then it's very much like '80s metal, where you had Motley Crue and Rat, yeah. Quiet Riot, and then a couple of years later you had copycat versions of those bands, yeah. and then you got copycat versions of the copycat versions. I mean, male exotic dancing, it's not that right. original of an sure. idea. It's, yeah. You can always get good looking dudes. It's like strip clubs. You know, yeah, yeah. there's one crazy girls in, on the strip is the best strip club, but then you've got, uh, you know, LA, uh, you've got oh, a deja vu in the valley, and, and they still have the best tagline of any business. Uh, thousands of pretty girls and three ugly ones. <laughs> so, um, um, but you know, the I think the peak was the decline was starting to happen around this time. I mean, Adonis had a real quick run. Yeah. Well, Reed Scott was a dancer with Adonis, and um, according to him, this is the end of episode three. He says this is when things got really interesting because. In July of 1991, he's hired by them to MC a run of shows in Blackpool, England. And two performances into the new Adonis show, um, the producers wave him off stage. They're in the wings and they're like, come over here, come over here. We need to talk to you now. And meanwhile, he's like surrounded by a bunch of guys and fucking G-strings with their dicks hanging out. And he's like, now? And they're like, yes, now get off the stage. So he gets off stage and these two detectives say, Hey, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, we need to speak to you because two men have been sent from have been sent from America to assassinate you. <laughs> and that's how episode three ends. So episode four is titled Showtime. I think you could see where we're going here. Mm. And back to Reed Scott. He's in Blackpool, England, and um, the MC of the competing brand Adonis. And he, they show him on stage and he screams, how'd you like to come back with me for a little bareback riding? Different era, dude. It's a different era. <laughs> the detectives grab him, they sit him down, and they say, this is serious, man. There's two people that are, have been hired to assassinate you. 
And he can't believe somebody would want to kill him. And more importantly, he has no idea why somebody would want to kill him, which tracks again. He's just an MC at Adonis. So according to him, he leaves the theater. He heads back to his flat, grabs the largest kitchen knife he can find, takes it into the shower with him, turns on the shower, and in mid-shampoo, the lights and the power go out. Oh, fuck. And he freezes, (sighs) and he thinks he's about to die. Well, luckily, he didn't. So main titles come up, and we hear a voice that says, I was a male right in 1991. Worked outside construction, putting their machinery in plants. My job took me all over the United States and some countries even. Now, I have no idea what a male right is. I watched this with closed captions. I Googled male right. I have no idea. If you know what the term is, I don't. Me out. Don't even bother Googling it. It's not even up there. So then we see another title that flashes up, and it says somewhere in the American Midwest. And the guy that was speaking... He's a scruffy old looking guy sitting in a cabin in the woods and the titles say his name is Strawberry. So according to Strawberry, he says, I was, a, uh, I was in a job in LA when I met Ray Cologne and we got to be friends and drank beers together and just hung out. He told me one time he had to set a club on fire. Well, I thought it was BS and never took it seriously, but as time progressed, I realized this guy was involved in some very bad things. One night I'm hanging out with Ray and he says, I got a job for you. He told me these dancers would be appearing in Blackpool, England, and he wanted me to fly there and catch these people where there was a lot of people around and stick them with a needle with this poison. And then I was supposed to just ease out of the crowd and come home and collect $25,000 and live happily ever after. And I'm going, what are you kidding me? And he said, you see these needles? There's cyanide in them. We're going to kill one of these guys and put the fear of God in them. So Strawberry, this guy, says that he thought Ray was joking. And then he soon realizes Ray's dead serious. And that's when he says, according to him, I knew I was in deep shit. He was also afraid that Ray might do something to him. And then he might even get stuck with the cyanide, cyanide needle himself because at this point he knows too much. So... Strawberry decides to go along with this whole plan because his plan is I'm going to go along with this and then just ditch Ray whenever I find a place to ditch Ray. So he says, no problem, Ray, I'm in. So Strawberry gets in a car with Ray. They head to the airport. This is in LA. And his plan is to contact some authorities as soon as he can shake Ray. So they park at the airport and you know, Strawberry's like, all right, Ray, I'll see you later. And Ray's like, oh, no, no, I'm going to walk you to the gate. Yeah. So he has to get on a plane and fly all the way to England. So at this point, he lands in London. He heads to the restroom. He has the cyanide needles on him. They're full of cyanide. He dumps them in the trash can. He's like, I'll go to the cops. I'll tell them what happened. And he's like, wait a minute. No one's going to believe this crazy story that I was hired to kill male exotic dancers with cyanide. So what does he do? turns around, gets on another plane, and heads right to Vegas because he said, I knew of an FBI field office in Vegas. So again, this is when we're reintroduced to Scott Gariola, who was the FBI agent at the beginning of the first episode. And Strawberry is a cooperating witness. And he says, though this story's crazy, we hear shit like this all the time. We got to take it seriously. So 
Strawberry goes undercover for the FBI to try and get Ray to admit his involvement in the plot. So they have these wow. recordings of Strawberry and Ray, and Ray uh, Ray's on the phone, and he calls uh, Strawberry up, and he says, or no, Strawberry calls Ray, excuse me, and he says, hey, Ray, are you sure this stuff is going to work? It looks red. And Ray says, yeah, don't worry about it. It'll work. So Strawberry's response is, well, I sure hope it does and kills them right away because I don't want to be... St- I don't want to be stuck with any of this shit. So right, this is when Ray says, hit him with a hammer on the, you know what, and then uh. go for his head. So strawberry does his job. Um, they get what they need on tape for the FBI. So they flip Ray, but of course they want to get to whoever's at the top of this whole thing. So Gary Ola says, strawberry is a pro. Uh, we have the evidence. Now this is interesting. They ask, the the FBI agent, they say, do you think that Strawberry was actually going to kill? And he says, whether or not he intended to intentionally kill the man is open for debate. He believes Strawberry was probably going to kill somebody, and then he got cold feet, and he wanted to make sure he wasn't going to go down for conspiracy as well, and that's why he went to the FBI. But it's never clear if Strawberry was intentionally going to do this, because this is just a story that he fed to the FBI. So who knows? Maybe he fucking lost the needles or they broke or whatever. And, you know, he's just trying to cover his ass. We don't know. So they put him in the witness relocation program. So the FBI uh, raids Ray's house and they find a bag with skull and crossbones on it with a jar of cyanide inside of it. (laughs) Right. Come on. It's like, here's the treasure map. (laughs) Fucking Looney Tunes. It's in an Acme box. It's fucking Goonies shit. So... Uh, Cologne is arrested. Cologne's arrested and bond is set at 100K and he can't even bond out at 100K. So back to Reed Scott, who spells his name like read a book, which I still think is funny. He's fucking crushed. I mean, he's emotional and he's pissed that somebody would want to kill him and his life was only worth (laughs) $25,000, which was probably overvalued in my opinion. (laughs) I mean, he's a fucking MC at Adonis. So Cologne's cooperating. He admits he was involved in another murder for hire plot. So he also admits that he did burn down clubs in Los Angeles. He also claims that he was part of the murder conspiracy that killed Nick DeNoya. And of course he says the person that hired him to do all this was Steve Banerjee. So the feds have tons of shit they're dealing with. They've got an old murder. They got arson. And then they got to worry about these two MCs at Adonis that are being threatened with murder. But the prosecutor says this isn't going to be an easy case because they essentially have to catch a tiger by the tail and they have a dirty informant in Ray Cologne. So next they pull the arson investigations from the LAFD and the LAPD and everything matches up to what Ray said he did with these crimes. Um, then they get into the Nick Denoya murder. Uh, Cologne hired a man that was named Louie, and he paid him twenty five grand to kill Nick. And according to the corroboration, they both took a flight from L.A. to New York. Then Louie took the elevator up to the 15th floor, pulled the gun out on Nick, and the feds compare their notes with the NYPD, and everything matches up. So now they have to figure out who the fuck this Louie guy is and then connect him to Banerjee. So they have everything they need on tape. They determined Louis' 
Real name is Gilberto Lopez Riviera. Now, the problem is this guy's locked up in jail in California on a narcotics charge at the time. So they're like, how the fuck are we going to get this guy to admit that he was involved in these murders? Because obviously he wants out of jail. So they wire Ray up. They send him in. And uh, they come up with an excuse that Gilbert left a living witness. That was the guy who said, I'm not Nick Denoya. He's down the hall. And that guy is blackmailing Ray's boss. So they get Rivera to admit that he did shoot Nick. And they corroborate this because he tells him exactly where the bullet went into Nick's brain, which I thought was, you know, some pretty specific detecting. Um, but according to the prosecutor, this still isn't enough evidence to get Steve for conspiracy. So the feds are trying to get Ray and Steve in LA in the same room and wire it up. But Steve knows something's going on and he won't get near Ray. So they run out of alternatives. So finally they have Ray ambush Ray, um, Steve and he's on the street and he says, you got to help me. I need money. I need it for lawyers, etc. They're on to me. And Steve's just like, I don't know who the fuck you are. Right. He's just like, who the fuck is this guy? Well, Steve agrees to pay Ray money. None of this is on tape. They're being surveilled by the FBI, but he pays Ray via dead drop at a restaurant. So they still can't make any connections. So the FBI is getting really frustrated at this point. What year is this specifically that this uh, is going on? This would have been early 90s. Okay. 91, 92. Does that sound right? So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Earl. So. Then they track Ray to a Santa Monica hotel where he meets up with Steve. And Steve gives him another $40,000, but not directly. It's a dead drop situation. What but, do you mean by dead drop? Explain meaning, that to the fans. Meaning he says, here's where your money will be, yeah. but I'm not going to be there when you meet it. So I'm not technically directly connected to the money. Okay. So... A lot of times with trash cans or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you know, rock, a whatever. Under the bed. But the point is, there he's not go. physically right. handing it off to him. So there's plausible deniability if he gets popped, if he were in court. And not only that, they can't get any recordings. This is all communicated when, when Ray uh, met, um, what's his name, um, at the Santa Monica Hotel when he met Steve. He was communicating with notes. They were writing shit back and mm, forth to each other. No and of course, destroying the notes. Yeah. So the FBI still can't figure out how to fucking get Steve. So they come up with a plan to let Ray bond out or escape. They don't, the documentary didn't go into the terms of how Ray got out, but they theorize if they can get Ray to another foreign country and meet Steve then Steve will be willing to talk. Because keep in mind, Steve wants to know what Ray knows because he's worried about his own personal safety. So they say it's a risky move because they could get Ray to another country and then he could go seek asylum or you know just disappear. So it's risky to say the least. So they send Ray to Rome and they wire him up an apartment there. Then, you know, the FBI, it's a classic movie scene. They're on the other side of the right. wall. And... They're waiting for Steve to show up. So they call Steve and Steve's like, where are you? And Ray's like, I'm in Rome. And then Steve's like, uh, I don't have a visa. I can't get into Rome. 
And the FBI is dumbfounded at this point. And then they realize Steve wasn't even a naturalized citizen. So this whole time he's been working for Chippendales, he wasn't a U.S. citizen. Wow. Right. Was he paying taxes, though? Of course. That's you all they care taxes. about. Yeah, of course. That is all they care about. Yeah, even if you're doing illegal shit, they really don't care. Right. So they ultimately end up on a meeting point in Zurich. So they get to Zurich, but again, Steve won't go near Ray to the hotel. He's like, I'm down here at the bar. Come meet me. And Ray's like, will you quit fucking around? I moved to another country. You know, you got to come see me. Well, Steve still won't take the bait. He wants the meeting on his terms. So they wire Ray up and they put the recorder in his jacket. Sure, yeah. And they're like, go meet him. Come so he meets jacuzzi. him at a coffee shop okay. and then they play the recording. They can't hear anything because uh, Ray took his jacket off. God. <laughs> they're like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. So at this point they have to scramble because they only have one opportunity to make this bust and get the information. So they send in a fake Swiss police officer into the restaurant to say you have to shut the whole uh, restaurant down immediately. So okay, what do they do? Subtle. They go down the road to another place. It's a bar. It's loud. Yeah. They can't hear anything. So, so does he have, does it, I'm, I don't know if to get yeah. too specific. Does he have his jacket on him? It's sitting just, next to him. He just can't hear shit because yeah, it's, because idiot. it's not on him. Like Fuck they told idiot. him to wear it. Right. So maybe he's an accessory, but go on. It was a little shady. Yeah. It's like, you've got this one job to do. Don't right. fuck it up. Right, it's right. like me talking to you about your one job on this podcast, and you just keep fucking it up. He's killing it. <laughs> so anyway. I'm doing great. He's made this long <laughs> podcast longer. Yeah. <laughs> so he finally talks Steve into coming back to his hotel room. The FBI gets there seconds before. They wire everything up, and... uh. Steve spills the beans and he says the only reason he hasn't been arrested is the FBI can't prove that he gave Ray the money or he gave Ray the gun or he gave Ray the address or he gave uh, Ray uh, any information to track down Nick and kill him. So they get everything. Steve finally got it, was yeah. comfortable enough to shoot his mouth off. So in night, this is 93. Steve is arrested and charged with murder, murder for hire, racketeering, and arson on a RICO charge. I mean, he's fucked. Yeah. So he's denied bail, and he says, my only thing I can do now is plead guilty, and he's facing 26 years in prison. Wow. So Ray pleads guilty to conspiracy and murder for hire, and he got a 25-year sentence. Now, because he cooperated with the feds, they bring it down to two and a half years. So the trigger man, Gilberto, he gets 25 to life. Now, Adonis shortly goes out of business immediately after. Yeah, it was just the, you know, really the 80s metal scene was very, uh, it's, it's funny that the timeline is so parallel to the, the 80s scene. The grunge. Uh, you know, 93, just no one wanted to see male exotic dancers anymore. It, yeah. It just, it had a nice run. Yep. It was a perfect era in the 80s, but, you know, the mid-90s, it was, uh, you know, the 80s was all about excess, you know, whereas the 90s coming in with Clinton and, you know, the bad economy and, you know, grunge, you know, all the entertain, you know, the 80s action movies were kind of bombing in the early 90s. Last and, action hero. Yeah, that was, oh that was a start, but, like, you yeah. didn't have movies like Cobra or Raw Deal or yeah. Over the Top. 
you know, wow. so it was just the 90s were uh, a very dark, depressing time to follow probably the most exciting decade ever. Yeah. In terms of decadence and yeah. pussy and And fashion and, and style. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, we we literally went into the dark age when we put our flannels on Yeah, to a degree. You know what I mean? And so. I was a part of that. But the 80s metal bands were. You had like yeah. Warrant, who was like one of the glamier bands in the history of, of that genre, showing up in flannel shirts and their instead of like the, wait warrant tried to cross over oh 100 i didn't know that they were actually pretty good as a band but it just right. was too late i mean rat um piercy uh rat had broken up so piercy did a like industrial metal like yeah he but that's what he kind of loved but that's another podcast but <laughs> yeah uh, the 90s were just um i'm sure josh adam Myers would love to talk about yeah, I'm sure he'd love to talk. I can't really help him, so he probably doesn't want to talk to me. But, <laughs> you know, this business is out of control. So, uh, I mean, you, you got these fucking people talking about Gallagher dying. Oh, yeah. Oh, I loved him. Uh, you, you know, two weeks ago, you tell me how bad he smelled, and yeah. he was trying to mooch weed off of you. Yeah, that was a huge thing on Facebook. Everybody was saying how bad he smelled. Well, it's like, what you know, there was a comic. Uh, she was a manager, not a... Uh, comic named cassie dang yeah now i got along with cassie she unfortunately passed away last week she was a manager Whoa. Uh, who knows dude yeah who knows? exactly i thought she was just a comedy fan uh who knows but like everyone now is devastated she died and it's like dude like i loved her but she was pretty annoying um you know so she od'd right uh, you know i don't know i don't know who oh knows? wow um wait was she where was she working I don't know. What am I, her manager? What am I, the manager's manager? <laughs> Fuck me. Right. Back to the show. So, uh, but so the 90s was just, you know, to have, a, even though Thunder from Down Under is a very uh, popular to this day, I guess. Yeah. There'll always be a, a small sliver of pie for horny women to yeah. look at these great beefcakes. Right. And that's where it is now. It's in Vegas. That's so. the last bastion of Ch the Chippendales franchise. Because you have those white trash tourists who, you know, they're they're probably from Nebraska or Omaha, and they don't see guys who look like, uh, you know, uh, American gladiators and, and you know, good-looking beefcakes. And, and, you know, they see Tom Osborne, the coach of the football team, who's like looks like Yoda. Um, so it, it's I, – I could, you know – it's not surprising that it's in Vegas doing well. So. Yeah. Well, um, here's the good or bad news, depending on which side you're on. On October 24th, 1994, while awaiting sentence, Banerjee hanged himself in jail. Oh, whoa. Yep. Epstein style? No, I think it's safe to say this, he, this, this guy, was a solo he, mission. He, he, he had no he other place it. to go. Yeah. When you get popped for conspiracy to commit murder murder and arson you're not looking sure. at much of a life after that well he's probably a loser and, and had no self-esteem and but he's making roast battler making tens oh. of millions of dollars oh, at yeah. what point is it not enough to just say i won i'm an indian immigrant um this is enough for me to be happy yeah but he was probably in the mindset no one likes me because of me they just like me because you know, I have cocaine and, and, right. and whore. Hey, you know what? There. That's still not a bad place to be. But I, if you're in a good headspace, it is. If you're confident. he You clearly saw that audition interview. Tape. Yeah. He was not a confident person. It was pretty rough. Uh, 
so <laughs> I could see him being like, "Fuck, this is it's over, Johnny." Well, uh, how do you feel about a little bit of um, where are they now? A hundred percent. I oh, mean, okay. yes. So let's part. start with Michael Rapp. Um, he, of course, was what was it? The Ultimate Man. Yes. Uh, yeah, his five minute starring show, uh, the biggest part of the show. Well, he danced until I wish 2000- I had five minutes. What's that? I wish I had five minutes. I wish you had two. <laughs> he continued to dance until 20, 2001. And uh, according to him, after 20 years and working every job at Chippendales, he hung up his G-string. Oh. Uh, well, there's a shelf life to those. Uh, I think, um, you know, definitely with female models, you know, yeah. once they're 25, they're done, which is insane. Yeah. Uh, but with men... You know, it's kind of the same timeline, you know. Like, he's a good-looking guy in the dock. You yeah. can tell he's wearing Spanx. Uh-huh. Like but he's keep... in his mid-60s, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm 54. I, I look yeah. good for 54, but I couldn't uh, have the body of a 24-year-old. So yeah. it's, you know, it had to be a weird thing for those guys to be, like, total beefcake rock stars. But then when the next wave of younger guys starts coming around, what are you going to do? You, you've yeah. spent your whole life making money on your body yeah. and your face. Yeah. And now you're a little smaller, maybe you got love <sighs> handles like or whatever, like you you have no job skills other than you're swinging your dick around. Hmm. So you probably get into escorting. It's weird because they interviewed him and they said, "Do you have any regrets?" And he said, "Absolutely not." And I'm thinking to myself, "You have no regrets that you lost your wife and a marriage?" With you know your son because you did coke and bang pussy every night. I think I might have one regret. Yeah, but you probably. I'm not saying you, but in his case, uh, you know the guy was a rock star. He fucked probably hundreds, probably over a thousand women. How do you dodge AIDS with that amount of sex he was having? Some guys just. Wait, guys can't get it, right? If they're straight, yeah, well, Aldo's, they can look at it. Aldo's the uh, patient zero. Uh, <laughs> like, how does Aldo not have any diseases? But like, you know, he, some guys are just lucky. You know, you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I'm probably a little lucky. Not that I put myself on having sex with that amount of women, but yeah. like, um, I mean, I think it's hard, from what I understand, for straight men to get it through straight sex yeah um it's not impossible obviously but i I think the odds are stacked in your favor yeah um you know they say monkeypox is uh, one of the main uh sources of transmission is through uh gay or bisexual sex Mm -hmm. so if you're a, a pure straight man unless you have a cut on your dick and you know the woman uh has an infected, you know, pussy basically. That, <laughs> you know, you're, it's going to be pretty hard for a straight man to get it. Yeah. So you know. Aldo, well, and maybe these guys have herpes and are like, that's just part of the game. But I mean, so, even the thought of having herpes for me, it's like a deal breaker. But they say everyone has herpes. Tw- no, they say twenty five percent of people have herpes. But I mean, we all have had a mouse sore. No, a no, canker no. sore. Yeah, yeah, that's you're talking about simplex too. But that's herpes and to to some form. Wait, right. can you get like let's say if she, 
No, she one a, and two. You can't get one. Let's say if she doesn't have a cut on it, this, this is going to be fun. I, don't, she does I not doubt have, that. She does uh, not have a cut. Based on the last three hours, I would say this is not going to be she fun. Does not ahead, have, she does not have a cut on her vagina, but you no, have she a, doesn't have to have no, no, it. No, like, I'm just saying, but if you have a herpes sore and you're giving her oral pleasure, can you give her at least no. you can the, get it. the topical herpes? No, topical from, and vaginal or yeah. genital are two different things. But if you're going down on a girl and she has genital herpes, what? oh, that's bad. You're gonna get it. You that's yeah. what you have a chance to get it. Do, you know, there's listen. There's uh, yeah. my friend who I did the Freddie Mercury story with. I mean, clearly Freddie Mercury died of AIDS. Yeah, my and and uh, Jeffrey, I believe, said it was unprotected sex. Yeah, um, it was the best way he told me. Like we're just going over his career and cabaret singing and he just looks at me on my couch and goes you know i fucked freddie mercury (laughs) i didn't but we're going to talk about about the next hour uh so in regards to how he didn't get aids or at the minimum you know some guys and women you're just lucky you know well um i forgot to add this i want to add this at the height of its success chippendales grossed an estimated 35 million dollars a year i mean Think about that kind of money in the '80s. You got to like at least double, triple it by now. If you think about the booze that they were selling, two drink minimum. Yep. At the Overland Venice location, which what did you say it sat two hundred people? Two ninety nine. So they probably had four hundred people in there. Yeah. Even if say a hundred got in for free, they're still drinking. That's you know you're if you have a successful bar, and I learned this from Sean Avery, the money you can make is mind blowing. Yeah. Like it's just. Like you said, you're you're selling sixty drinks out of a yeah. bottle of whiskey, yeah, or pours. Sixteen. Uh, uh, well, I mean, yeah, and a sixteen ounce bottle uh, or twenty four, you're getting about you know twenty pours, yeah, out of that. Uh, you know, so everything after the tenth pour is pure profit. Yeah, like it's literally pure profit. A beer that a, a Bud Light's eight bucks in most bars that costs the bar. Two bucks. Yeah. Uh, so, but you know, there's a lot of bars out there, so you have to come up with a concept, and you yeah, know, you happening know, spot. A lot of bars go out of business. I would love to own a gay bar to, in my neighborhood. That bar, Mickey's. Oh Mickey's is still going. Rage is gone, right? Uh, Rage is now Lance Bass's club. Heart. I um, went into Rage one night with a buddy of mine. We were trying to get cocaine, and uh, he goes. Hey, if I need to be convincing and make out with this dude to score us cocaine, just go with me on it. But it doesn't make me gay. And I was like, hey, just get the cocaine. I don't need any stories. Oh, there's so much drugs in the gay community. Like, because yeah. I live on probably the gayest street in the world, Larrabee. Like, yeah. it's literally. Even sounds gay. It's ground zero yeah. for uh, homosexual activity. Um, and the bars, uh, I would love, to, I would have no shame being a straight man owning a gay bar. Like, yeah. um, Hamburger Mary's. Hamburger Mary's is popular. Uh, Rage or Heart now is relatively popular. Rocco's, which is across the street, always packed. I mean, Mickey's is the benchmark. I mean, that is, you could have another 90. That's ground zero. Oh, it's more like pound zero. Hello. <laughs> That's one. pretty good. That was good. It was, it was you three, got one. Three fucking hours. Put it on, my, <laughs> put it on the uh, reel. But like, I, I, can, I can't imagine how much money, or the place next to it, it's, it's they're kind of cool. It's a knit, a niche, niche. Depending niche. Where, uh, right. Uh, <laughs> depending where you're from, uh, Baja Cantina. Yeah. So it's like a Hispanic. It's not necessarily a gay bar, but it's 
definitely different than Mickey's or the revolver. It's yeah. packed every night. So um, I would love, love to own a bar. Well, we should talk about that. Ooh, I have I'm a, looking for a retirement plan because this podcast ain't it. Oh uh, well, not with your sidekick here. <laughs> you know, if you need a promoter. Back to Michael. Um, he he's happy now, according to him. I did. I went off the dock to find this information, but the this is current. Um, he since remarried a woman named Yolanda, 15 years his junior. I mean, come on. What's that put her at, like 40? Regular old Dane Cook. Hey, no, I 50. Can't, I can't hate on Dane Cook. When I was 47, I dated a 19-year-old, so I think Dane. you know her, too. I do. Ooh, boy. Yep. She left quite an impression on me and my mattress. See how we worked the yeah. joke? He uh, knew the punchline was coming yes. because he's a professional. Yes. Okay. No, anyway. she was cool, actually. Yes. A bit of falling now. Well, sorry. Um, she was a fan of his. Um, so he used his, you know, uh, D-list celebrity, whatever you want to call it, to the max. He says he met her on MySpace, um, found out that she had a picture of him on his wall, and uh, now they live together in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, where they own a women's boutique, and he also works as a fitness trainer. Um, I checked his IMDb. I was curious. You were the 80s master if you'd heard of any of these titles. Do you recall a film by the name of Tall, Dark, and Handsome in 1987? No. There was only really one movie, because I know what kind of films this guy was in, and Brett Baxter Clark was in it, and it was filmed right down the street from my childhood home. It's called Malibu Express. Okay. And it is a, it's the ultimate sexploitation. It's just every chicken has huge tits, and, uh, you know, uh, Sybil Danning was like the lead bad guy, bad girl, and she's like the queen of sexploitation movies. Um, and my Facebook buddy Darby Hinton, he was the uh, the good. Uh, he was like the detective. The movie was so bad; it was literally just let's get ten chicks with huge tits, and and Darby Hinton was a very good looking guy, and uh, so he, that he did movies like that. What about Muscle Motion, 1983? Do you remember that one? No. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go through Roger Menashe's credits because I guarantee you, you're going to know one of them. Um, Just Can't Get Enough, 2002. He played the featured waiter. No, I don't. Okay, how about Ladies Night, 1983? I mean, it, it sounds familiar, but I don't know. Okay, Mr. Mom, 1983. He played oh, I was male just dancer. thinking about that. Is it, that, my... that was... Was Mr. Mom the one with Michael Arnold? Keaton. Michael Keaton. Oh, Michael Keaton. I had my Keaton very first kiss right. to that movie. Really? Yeah. Oh. Jennifer, About 220, 221? Jennifer Molina. Okay. Uh, it was at the Man Bruin Theater. It was, Jesus, you had a late kiss. I was eight in 1983. When did you first I kiss mean, a I, I had a kiss in the eighth grade, but like the first like French kiss. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it was. She laid it down uh, so you were like tongue. 26. No, I was. How old was I? Uh, <laughs> what, 83. So 15. Uh, Jenny Molina. Jenny, shout at the, out at okay. the man. We still keep in touch. Uh, oh, who else was in that nice. movie? I don't Michael have to bleep Keaton, yeah, and Jillian uh, Gar. Uh, I want to say Martin Mull. Martin Mull, he was uh, the bad guy. Um, so I, I, I Terry Gar, yes, yes, ter- yeah. right. I, and yeah, I mean, uh, it's 
I have a special spot in my heart for that movie. Yeah, it's a it's a classic. Um, perfect. You referenced this film earlier. If I recall, that was John Travolta, and I can't remember who the woman oh, was. I can tell you the whole cast. It was John Travolta, Jamie Lee Curtis, um, uh, uh, Mary Lou Henner, uh, my buddy Matt Reed, who was a private trainer. He played like one of the um, door guys. Was um, his last name spelled R D A? Uh, I don't remember, but I, it was filmed at two gyms. I worked at both. Uh, the main location was on the Sports Connection on Ocean Park and 31st. Oh, shit. Santa Monica. And then they did like the main aerobic scenes. Remember sports Connection. In what was uh, the Sports Connection in West Hollywood. Um, so it was a chain uh, gym that was owned by Mike Tala and Nanette Pate Francini, they later started the Sports Club LA. Okay. Oh, and then somebody made giant, a comedy special yeah. about it. Giant gym on Equinox. Yeah. Um, and they were in the movie as the gym owners. It's a great uh, guilty pleasure. To, I mean, it's a horrific movie. Is it worse than Staying Alive? Uh, well, I love Staying Alive because Stallone directed it. Yeah. Um, wow. It's. But that movie's often referred to as one of the worst movies of the 80s. Maybe the only other movie that's as bad as perfect in terms of the concept is Aspen Extreme, <laughs> uh, which was about the two ski instructors yeah. with, who are pussy hounds. <laughs> Pete Berg later became a huge Peter director. Berg was in yeah, that? Yeah, he played Dexter Wateki. Oh, uh, wow. And is this close to Hot Dog? It makes Hot Dog look like Weathering Heights. Uh, <laughs> And I, it's funny, the main woman in Aspen Extreme was Fanola Hughes. So years later, I'm on some e-show where Rosie Tran is getting a makeover. And I remember she called me and Yoshi, Yoshi Obayashi. Legend. Uh, who has the best gay joke I've ever heard, which was, uh, I don't understand people being gay. Like... How bad does a pussy have to smell for you to want ash? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, I saw him one night opening up for Russell Peters. He did that joke at the Wiltern, and it was packed. I mean, yeah. it was standing room only at the Wiltern. And the Wiltern is no seats. It's yeah, just like, standing room. So it, it's, when it's one standing room only, yeah. it's, it's really packed. And Yoshi was so nervous, he did that joke two times in a row. Oh. Like he did the joke, got a big laugh, and they started it again. I worked with him in Phoenix a couple years ago, yeah. and he was just a crusher. He, I mean, he's, oh, he's just, great. Like, his his act is just so tight. Um, but uh, him and like uh, Jason Rouse or uh, yeah, two uh, you can't follow them because yeah. they're so. Uh, but uh, yeah, so one more movie. Uh, he was in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, and Ooh. playing playing Khan's crewman number seven, Ricardo Montalban. And I, I worked for him years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, when I first got to LA, when I was moving gym equipment, and I went up to his house, and uh, he had me uh, move a gym, and I remember lifting it up, and it was just full of white maggots. Just crawling oh, under, and it immediately made me think of the Wrath of Khan because they put the that maggot thing in that guy's ear in the beginning of Khan right. too. But it was so creepy. But was, he was a nice guy. I'm not. Uh, I don't know. Uh, is the beautiful Indian actress? I think was in that Star Trek. Her name's Persis Kambata. 
she was in Stallone's movie as the female terrorist Nighthawks in, yeah. in the movie Nighthawks. Yeah, so. which is a great movie with Rucker Howard. It, yes, and, and it's a great back. This has nothing to do with Chippendale, no. but, <laughs> but it's the '80s, so keep going. I read Rutger Howard's biography, and uh, oh, I, did you get a signed copy? I did yeah. actually uh, from Book Soup. Yeah, um, of course. So I always thought movies were somewhat shot in sequence, mm-hmm. which is insane to think now, yeah. knowing what I knew know about the business now. But in the movie Nighthawks, the first scene they ever shot was the the ending. So when Stallone is who's in drag, Rucker Hauer thinks it's his wife, and then Stallone takes off the wig and he kills Rucker Hauer. Um, that was the first scene they shot, and apparently, uh, to get the effect of Rucker Hauer being shot. Um, they had like a wire hooked up to his back and Rucker Howard was told the wire set at like two or three. So it'll jerk you back a little bit. Oh, and then you let your acting take over. Stallone told the stunt guy, Jack it to dine, turn it to 10. <laughs> oh shit. So if you watch the end of Nighthawks, I'm sorry if I ruined it. I figure in no. 2022, if you haven't seen the movie, you're yeah. probably not going to see it. We're all, well, this we're, show we're, is technically a spoiler alert. Yeah, we're so don't feel it. like you can't. Yeah, I mean it's literally forty years old. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was eighty one, so it's forty one years old. Uh, so I, apparently, the whole rest of the movie, uh, and if you watch the movie, you could see tension, like real tension oh, between shit. Stallone and Rucker Howard. No, Rucker Howard wow. said he did everything humanly possible. If they had a chase scene, he would outrun Stallone, and and Stallone got pissed, and and it, it, it is a very competitive set. Wow. And it was a wild set because I think <laughs> Stallone had fired the director like the second day of shooting. For I forget the reason why. So then Stallone started to direct the movie. And at that time, according to SAG rules, it was illegal for the main, uh, the lead actor to also direct the movie for safety ah. issues. So then they had to get another director, and so the movie is a great movie, yeah. uh, in my opinion. But it's a little you you can see why it's a little disjointed. <laughs> Do you see in the movie like he gets jerked back pretty hard? Uh, yeah, like I just said five yeah. minutes ago. So, yeah, okay. Perfect timing, Dave. Uh, Richard Barsh, <laughs> the original MC at Chippendales, uh, the one that followed Paul Snyder. He was cast as an MC in two roles: uh, one in the uh, TV show Chips. I love chips. Uh huh. And also in a movie called For Ladies Only. Do you ever hear of that? I have. I don't remember anything about it, but I, real fast. One time I walk into Best Buy on Sautel and Peak. No, no, I'm sorry. It was the one on uh, La, uh, La Brea and uh, Santa Monica. And I, I hadn't been there yet. I'd always gone to the one on Sautel and Pico. And so I go in there, and there's this pretty big Mexican dude in a blue shirt. And I tap him on the shoulder and before he turned around, I'm like, hey, do you know where the CDs are? And it was Eric it was Estrada. Estrada. Oh, and, shit. And he actually showed me where the CDs are. <laughs> oh, shit. Like, he had a good sense yeah. of humor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nice. Sondra Theodore. Um, of course, she was the playmate that was introduced uh, in the beginning of episode one. She right. talked about going all the time. She had a nice career. She was on the Bob Newhart show, uh, played girl number one. She was also on Chips and play in an episode she played Marsha. She uh, did a stint on Fantasy Island, um, three on a date as model number two. Now, this movie I thought you might have heard of because I have not. It was called Skateboard, released in 1978. You ever hear of it? Uh, yeah, but I, I don't. Uh, there was a movie that came out that same year called Roller Boogie with, uh, 
Linda Blair and Jim Bray, who I thought was going to be a star. He's Jim Bray? Look, yeah, just good-looking guy. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like Michael Beck from The Warriors. So I thought this mm-hmm. guy's, and, you know, they just, it's it's such a weird business how some people make it, some don't. Um, so. Uh, I wonder if there's a documentary about, like, the the movies that came out just because there was a movie coming out on this exact topic, like what you're saying, like try to beat them to well, I think market the most, or whatever. The most famous uh, situation of that was in 1989. There was three underwater movies. Oh, shit. Uh, Deep Space Six. Leviathan. Leviathan with Peter Weller. And there was yeah. a third one, The Abyss. Oh, yeah. Which is a Kubrick. brilliant film. Isn't that no, no, James, James Cameron. Uh, oh, James Cameron. Man. And it was, I remember going to see all three, and I, it was like literally in like one month. It was like, yeah. one, uh, I'm a Peter Weller guy who I yeah. also met at that same Best Buy at a, <laughs> Eric Estrada. I, dude, he's like, obviously, Robocop means a lot to me, yeah. even though he was not the original choice for Robocop. Who was? The great Michael Ironside. Oh, yeah, legend. Um, but the this shows you the wackiness of the business. Uh, Michael Ironside, I don't, I don't know if I'd say he was fired, but he was let go because the outfit didn't fit him. Of course, I mean, literally something that stupid. Peter Weller got hired because the war, the outfit fit him. Yeah, don't don't just go adjust the outfit for a great actor. I think yeah, hundred percent. I think yeah. my favorite example of that is uh, the original Engelbird from uh, Bad News Bears was fired from the sequel for uh, losing weight. Ugh. Oh, shit. Because in the first movie, it's the funniest line in the movie where they're watching Walter Matthau clean the pool. And uh, Walter Matthau's like, don't jump in the pool, Engelbert. You might flood the valley. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and then, so that's insane. Like, you wonder why this business drives people to suicide. Yeah. Yeah. That kid was literally told... Hey, you look great. You lost weight. Sorry, yeah. you're fired. Yep. Uh, what about Stingray? Uh, because that was, I think, her biggest hit, and it was 1978. You ever heard of Stingray? Um, I've heard of it, but I don't... Uh, you know, I was only 10 at the time, so I wasn't really watching TNA movies. I mean, 78, I'm trying to think of my two favorite movies from 78 would be Convoy with Chris Christopherson and Ally McGraw mm-hmm. and uh, Big Wednesday, ironically enough, which is a surf movie, and I don't surf, yeah. never have. I recently rewatched uh, the Christopherson, uh, Streisand, uh, Star is Born. I oh, loved yeah. it. It's so good. Uh, but Big Wednesday, real fast, the story about Big Wednesday is... How do you remember the date, like the years? Well, I mean, I... I do you remember where he was? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean that's. I from guess not that's drinking. all. Oh, that's also. Yeah, the, from- <laughs> that's true. The, the non-drinking is also also. He does great, the opposite of what you do with your jokes. No, like also too. It's like you have. Uh, there was maybe pace was a little bit slower, so you remembered all the little things. But I mean the great. Yeah, I do. I I, I can remember seeing Big Wednesday at the Man National in Westwood, which yep. is now I think condos. And I was in the theater alone, and I remember going, not knowing anything about the business or box office, like, this can't be a good sign. Yeah. But the story with Big Wednesday is made by the great legendary uh, writer and director, John Milius. Oh, legend. Who ghost wrote... Um, the scene in Jaws. Uh, what he, that and Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Um, and... Um, him, Spielberg, and George Lucas all went to USC, yep. a film school, and they all say Milius was the more talented one. Yeah. And so they had a deal 
that they all would trade points on their next movie. Um, Keep it fair. They graduated uh, in mid early to mid seventies. So Spielberg's movie was Close oh, Encounters. Wow. Uh, Lucas's was first Star Wars, and Millie's was Big Wednesday. Wow, I didn't know about Big Wednesday. It's prime Jan Michael Vincent. Yeah, like the the Brad Pitt of his generation. Yeah, I mean I'm straight as you can get, but God damn, everybody wanted to be him. Yeah, I remember hearing the stories, the early stories about Vincent. Well, then I met him at the King Games in the '80s when he would sit next to me and just like he. he Wow, dude, it was so, such a bummer to see such a perfect example of male perfection and then see him it look like he swallowed two hams and they just lodged in his cheekbones. Yeah. Uh, but prime Gary Busey. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sam Melville, who most people of, of who are younger than me won't know, but he was in that ABC show, The Rookies. He played like the... It's kind of a Star Wars vibe. Like Sam Melville was the Yoda surf guru, and he would. The whole theme of the movie is Big Wednesday is that one final. Um, for I forget the reason they call it Big Wednesday, but it's when the every fifty years. It's a fifty-year storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget what Wednesday. I think God, it happens man. on Wednesday. I like some weird. Yeah. And uh, Jerry Lopez. Uh, Big Kahuna. Uh, he, well, it's funny if you look at the back of my hoodie, and I'll show it to you when we're done. Uh, you know, I don't want to accuse Aviator Nation of stealing, but their main logo, you know, that's it's that high end surf, uh, hippie surf uh, clothing line. It's Jerry Lopez's lightning bolt. Oh, no shit. Not that Jerry Lopez owns the lightning bolt logo, but yeah. I'm telling you right now, if that was Gene Simmons, he would have trademarked the lightning logo. Gene Simmons trademarked the dollar sign. No shit. Yeah. You're so, allowed to do that? He did How do you it. trademark the dollar sign that belongs to the U.S. government? He did it. <laughs> huh. So anyone, that, any rapper that had a, a logo of... Oh, know, the dollar sign, like right, the stand. Right, the, the stamp. Yeah. The, oh, wow. Uh, so a uh, shout out to Jerry Lopez. Um, Crazy. So that's just a wacky story about... Yeah. You know, big um, so that's I a wanna... great bar fact right there. Well, I also am a big fan of the surf. It's weird. It's two of my favorite movies are surfing related. The North Shore is and Point Break. Point Break, yeah, hundred percent. Well, it's a, I, it's a perfect film in my opinion. I mean, it's eighties cheese. Uh, you know, it's a little silly. I don't know if I would say the movie holds up. Oh, it definitely does. Uh, well, it's certainly better than the uh, the. I didn't uh, bother the remake. Yeah. It was tough, but what about uh, Surf Ninjas? Prime Swayze, oh, uh, Prime Keanu, Gary Busey. One of the best action scenes of all time. Steady cam shots. You know oh, yeah. that the chase work. scene. Um, Catherine Bigelow. I mean, that she's she's a star. People it took a long time for people to recognize that greatness. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's an innovative movie. Of course, Rat had the uh, closing. Uh, um, that's when I knew Rat was kind of coming to an end because in the video for Nobody Rides for Free, uh, they were wearing like board shorts and jeans. Back and, off, War Child. Yeah. I mean, Anthony Kiedis. Uh, it, it, I mean, so John uh, McGinley, great. Uh, Amazing. Uh, he's good. In it. He's, he's like, always has the scene stealers. Platoon. Oh, yeah. You know, Wall Street. Wall Street. I, yeah. he, I think he's the modern day or maybe the slightly younger version of Gene Hackman. Who's, he's just good in everything. Yeah. Um, so, But North Shore is a great movie. I had uh, Turtle from North Shore on my podcast. 
Um, I've never been so starstruck in my life. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about some recent uh, information Sonder Theodore dropped. Uh, I didn't see the documentary. Maybe we'll cover it on here, but Secrets of Playboy, did you see it at all? Uh, yeah, not a uh, definitely doesn't paint Hugh Hefner in a good light. Well, here's some here's some gems for her interview. Uh, according to her, she said he would tell the public even good girls enjoy sex, healthy sex, and there was nothing healthy about the sex that Hefner had because he took it too far. Um, she also claimed that uh, uh, Hefner would make her get him drugs. Um, and then I also read somewhere that she uh, he took a hit of acid every night while they were together for a long time. Um, she also recalls that he uh, was into bestiality. Did you hear about this? Whoa. I, you know, I haven't. It wouldn't surprise me. Like I said, I went to the Playboy Mansion twice. It's a pretty, looking back, like, yeah. I can separate myself well, from the sheer here's awesomeness. A here's a direct quote. Pretty scummy guy. Here's a direct quote. I walked in once, and he was with our dog. And I said, oh. what are you doing? And he says, well, dogs have needs. Uh. And I went, quote, stop that. Just stop that. And Oops. after that, I never left him alone with the dog again. I couldn't believe was I, what I was saying. So my question is, was he jerking off the dog or was he sucking the dog off? See, I don't believe that. Was it a dog female you or don't? male? Because that seems like an unnecessary pylon. Uh, I mean, listen, I don't know. It could be true. Like, there's well, some let, me, let me continue. In, you know, bullshit. Out there. Here's another quote. Um, she says... Uh, Hefner required her to have sex with other women and men when uh, he filmed and directed them. Uh, according to her, she says, uh, this information is so disturbing and so disgusting. I'm sick to my stomach and could cry hearing about this stuff. Hugh Hefner was disgusting and a terrible person. I will never think otherwise. Um, she alleges it was when Hefner became infatuated with blood and snuff films that she finally gathered the courage to walk away and leave him. What kind of mind is so far gone that it takes killing somebody to get them excited for that big release? Wow. Uh, I never heard any of this stuff before. I mean, you know, I, I can't say I was around his inner circle a lot. But <laughs> Dude, I, mean, I was only there once and I was working. I mean, the two times I was there, it was... You'd think as a guy, you'd be like, oh, my God, this is the greatest place on planet Earth. It's all pussy, or mostly all pussy. But it's like, there's a creepiness about it. Like, it was a lot of older dudes. And uh, not that, you know, listen, I'm 54. Who doesn't like young girls? But it, it, it felt predatory yeah. both times I was there. Plus, like, older dudes back then looked like older dudes. Yeah, like Vince Neal, like him being there made sense. Um, you know, Fred Dreyer, according to uh, Star 80, I was doing some research on Star 80. Apparently, he just lived there. Like, they had to be like, Fred, you got to go. Well, I mean, it, it was, I mean, it's one of the nicer homes I've ever been in. I mm -hmm. mean, you, you've been there. Yeah, like, it's, it's insane. It's like, it, it's hard to describe what that mansion was. The You know, just even the pool room, which was like where the video games and pinball machines were, that's nicer than most people's house. Well, yeah. interestingly enough, Sondra Theodore, is one of the women on the famous Playboy pinball machine. Okay. Yeah, it's her and pay, uh, playmate Patty McGuire. So um, one more um, credit to wrap up from Dan Peterson. He was uh, featured a lot in the documentary. He made uh, an appearance on 30-something in 1990. 
Of course, okay. you remember Peter Horton, and who else? Who was the female lead on that? I've tried to get Peter Horton on my podcast so much. Oh, that would be a great interview. Let's start a Twitter rampage. Well, guys. he always gets back to me, but I could tell. Because his first role I ever... I think it was his first role, he told me, was in The White Shadow, uh, which was a great... Yes. It was one of my... I just was on some other podcast. Do you remember Eric Edwards' bit about The White Shadow? Uh, vaguely. <laughs> yeah. but it's The White uh, Shadow. It, it, Long story short, it's a great. It was only three seasons. Yep. It was a groundbreaking. It was like an ensemble version of All in the Family ah. about a white coach. He has a NBA uh, blows out his knee, can't yeah. play anymore. He still loves the game, so he goes it's to like school. the air up there. Sorry, go yeah. on. Just, just this guy really sorry, knows sorry. how to fuck. Sorry, sorry, so sorry. Oh, <laughs> you are the worst, bro. I mean, you know, I, I wish I could make you go back to Chick-fil-A and get me food. <laughs> um, it was, uh, so he goes to coach in a ghetto. So yeah. it's it was black a heavy, yeah. mainly black kids, yeah. one Mexican kid, and then I don't know how the Jewish kid got on the team, Goldstein. <laughs> uh, but I think he might have known somebody in the business. <laughs> groundbreaking, though. Like, for the topics that they went over, rape, abortion. Yeah. And in Peter Horton's episode, and I, I believe he told me it was his first acting role, he plays a gay high school student. He goes to Carver High because the kids at his old school are bullying him. So one day they go to play pickup basketball at a park. So they're playing. All of a sudden, some kids from his old high school show up to play, and they're calling him a fag. And like this is on... Uh, CBS on Monday night. Yeah, so you hear yeah, the word yeah, fag. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like but it was now, educational. But like now, if you did that scene, kids would be like, uh, "We just heard Ludicrous City N word forty times on his music." Yeah, but it's still not. I don't think. Except yeah. But like to it's hear that word sure, sure. on, you know, because there was no FX, there's no HBO, yeah, yeah. there's no, there might have been HBO, there's no Hulu, yeah. there's no Amazon Prime. It was three networks. Sure. So to have a show that. Uh, yeah. edgy yeah. Um, that was really outside of all in the family my first comedy influence oh because uh, my favorite episode is when the coach takes three two black players in salami he was the italian kid <laughs> who ended up directing all of uh the sopranos and boardwalk empire like the group of kids that later uh they all became like big uh producers and directors thomas carter kevin hooks um, the coach takes him to this racist country club, and it's the funniest. Was, was this an hour or a half hour? It was an hour. It was an hour. Oh, shit. This episode, I believe it's season two, called Lynx. Wow. The racial zingers that they were getting off. Uh, there's a, a scene where Coolidge, the big center, gets out of the car, and Salami goes, hey, cool, <laughs> nice knickers. And Coolidge goes, what'd you call me? Like, <laughs> it's dumb. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it's and baby, then baby. Uh, they're at the grill room getting food and uh, um, the coach ordered, he says, I'll have the roast beef o Jews. And uh, Salami <laughs> goes, is that how Goldstein gets it? <laughs> <laughs> and then the waiter, who's this old black dude, asks Thorpe, how do you want your food? And he's like, on a plate. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. 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 I yeah. mean that's probably the weakest of the jokes, but like, uh, it was just so groundbreaking. Sure. Uh, that if you showed the White Shadow to a teenager today, they'd be like, yeah. "This is so fucking boring." Yeah. Uh, right. But uh, Mark Tinker, who did a lot of the episodes, produced it. Um, 
he was the producer of the Babe Ruth movie I did. Oh, okay. So when I walked up to him, I go, dude, I love the White Shadow. He like, I think he gave me an extra line just because I told him. That. Yeah. Uh, You've been nice. in two sports movies. You're also in Bench Warmers. Bench Warmers. But here's the funny thing about the Babe Ruth story. I lied and said I played pro baseball. Now I was, I think, 21 at the time. So I'll remember one of the scenes we're warming up. You know, we're just playing catch, and the Pashoric brothers were in this movie. Now I'm sure this has never been said on a podcast before. Their brother was Tom Pashoric, a pretty famous baseball player in the 80s. So uh, we had on 1920s replica mitts, and uh-huh. if you've ever seen. Yeah. Baseball. They're like milk cartons. Yeah, they're like very little padding. And these guys were minor league pro baseball players. Yeah. So I felt like I broke bones in my sure. hands. Yeah. Because they had, they're like, all right, guys, action. And they're the Pachork brothers are throwing hard yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. ball. And I'm like, oh. like, it hurt. And then we would have farting contests. <laughs> and then the funniest thing is one of them came into my work. I was working at the Sports Connection. And I said, hey, if you guys ever want to work out, I work here. And one of them came in, and he works out. And he, as he's leaving, he opens up the door and goes, hey, Earl, and rips the loudest fart I've ever heard in my life in the whole front desk. Like, this fucking clown out of here. A um, couple more to go through from Dan Jesus Peterson. Christ, man. Oh, okay. okay. Um, Fred Dreyer made me think of Hunter. He did uh, an episode of Hunter. I met him at Bookstar. Fred, Fred. yeah, I met him once. He was a very cool guy. You know, I, very Republican. I say I met him at Best Buy. I forget my. Aunt, I think I said. I think I said, "Hey, Detective Hunter, do you know what time it is?" And he looked at me and was like, "Come on, bro." Yeah. Like, and he, but then he told me what time it was. <laughs> um, he did an episode of Mad About You, where he played Mad Dog Reese, and then of course we're going to come full circle. He was also in Perfect as well. Well, Perfect if. You know, it's been a minute since I've seen it. Uh, I'm gonna watch it tonight. <laughs> there, it's a guilty pleasure. Like if you're high, I'm not saying you, but like if yeah. you want to get high or do shrooms, it's it's a pretty funny movie too. It's just the quintessential '80s fun movie. Like yeah. cruising is like the quintess an American Jiggle are pretty dark. Yeah. Uh, representatives of the '80s, but but it's because of the lighting and and yeah. the. the cinema photography but perfect is just such an implausible movie right um and it just we're hanging out in the gym sculpting our bodies to be perfect that's the pitch well, isn't well, it that, yeah that's john travolta you know i he did some article on i think on like the rolling stones for rolling stone that's who he works for yeah and it doesn't do well so he's like really struggling to find out what the next article should be about and uh Somehow, I think he saw like a cover of uh, not, not Muscle and Fitness, but one of those fitness magazines about the the American Gym is the new singles bar. Yeah. So they sent him out here to. Um, so it's it's pretty, and this is prime Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, Trading yeah. Places, Jamie Lee. It's I think it's the same year. Yeah. Or maybe the eighty five. Okay. It, yeah. So this might have been Trading Places was eighty three. I want to say. Yeah. No, it was because that was the first date i took jenny molina out to uh she was so hot dude oh my god and no one believed me that i had a hot girlfriend because she went to uh westlake high i went to notre dame high so when i would tell people at notre dame high i had a hot girlfriend they're like okay dude we've never seen her before it was like jan brady george glass but i mean and she still is amazing looking so uh you know i would recommend perfect if you're just 
you know, if you're trying to show a date or, or a, a whatever about the 80s, but, you know, they might not like it. Like my last, uh, uh, I guess, ex-fiance, ex-girlfriend, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, she uh, was 29. No, 27 when we started dating, and then we dated until she was 30. We had this thing where she was always trying to get me to watch James Bond with Daniel Craig because I'd never seen one. I love the Daniel Craig Bonds. I just (laughs) recently watched all of them. All of them are brilliant, except Quantum of Solace. It's a little weak. I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a date night. Brilliant and weak. Date night where we watch one Daniel Craig movie and you have to watch one Roger Moore movie because that's my James Bond. Yeah, well, this okay, The Spy Who Loved Me, one of the best in Jaws, only because of Jaws, right? But then when you got into like the Moonraker shit and the campiness, I I just cannot do it. But those early Roger Moores, they're solid. And not only that, Carly Simon tying the bow on the Spy Who Loved Me with the, one of the best Bond songs of all time. I, I mean, to a certain point, that Moore was great. My favorite villain is Jaws, <laughs> absolutely. Like, but they turn him into a good guy at the end of Moonraker. Uh, she did not like Moonraker, is the point. She's like, oh, this is kind of hokey. Well, that's when they were literally putting lasers on sharks in space. It was out of control. But the first Star Wars was, you know, the asteroid fields were baked potatoes. <laughs> and okay. if you look now, yeah. it's like, they oh, fixed my God, them now. that is a baked potato. Yeah, uh, they fixed them now. But also. my favorite opening of any James Bond is Moonraker, when he's in the plane and... Uh, it, it, I just I love how sexist the Roger Moore James Bonds were. Yeah, where he's feeling the stewardess's leg, and she goes, "Any higher, Mister Bond, and my ears will pop." And he says, <laughs> "Excuse me, um, I don't know if I'll ever fly again." And she goes, "You're so correct, Mister Bond." And then they throw him out of the plane, and then Jaws comes after yeah, him, yeah, flying like, in. But like, if you obviously the advances and and stunt film is advanced a hundredfold but if you look at that scene now you can clearly tell it's not like i really thought it was roger moore right it's how dumb i was but i was 10 years old right yeah and it's funny to see the guy playing richard keel who in real life was seven two or whatever he was it's clearly not richard the camera work is brilliant how they cheat it where it kind of looks like jaws but uh I, i just love jaws man yeah, I, I think he had uh, four appearances. Only two: "Spy Who Loved Me" and. Um, Are you sure about that? You only lived twice. Hundred percent. He was only in two: he was "Spy Who Loved Me" and "Moonraker." <laughs> I think someone said they wanted to bring him back, um, but uh, you know they did not. So. Well, um, on our show, once we finish a, a dock, we decide to rate it and assign it a number of dockings. Um, so you and I both watched this documentary on a scale of one to four, meaning one's the worst, four's the best. How many dockings would you give this podcast? The podcast or the no, actual excuse documentary? Me, excuse me, the documentary. documentary. The pod- <laughs> I mean, do them both, Earl. Do them both. Um, I mean, it was good. I mean, I thought you could have probably done it in three episodes I agree. a little long in the tooth i think i wish they would have interviewed more people other than michael yep now i'm sure in this well they did interview the bald dancer roger with the uh, roger yes. Menash. uh but you know sadly i'm sure a lot of those uh dancers died of aids yeah. like if you 
No, I'm not kidding. I'm I like. Sorry to laugh. <laughs> but if you look like, at some of like the that. scenes where Nick is teaching him how to dance, yeah, clearly some of them were, uh, at the minimum, bisexual. Well, and we forgot to bring this up. They made it a mandatory policy to only have one black man in every uh, uh, show. Wow, I mean, they couldn't have more than one. You can't have that a was a black banner. Oh, you guy. can't have more than one. Yeah, that was a banner. Hey, man, you, can well, you can't have a black at guy least one. Those type of speedos, like it's just like <laughs> yeah. you no know, girl's gonna want to look at any other guy. I mean, it's like literally. Yeah, a they think they're gonna bat. be. They think they're gonna be hung. And then you look at the Mike, literally the perfect man. Yeah, would uh, you call so, a banana hammock? Yeah, yeah. Banana. I played on a hockey team once called the Banana Hammocks. I didn't really know what that meant, so I, it was a team full of Filipinos and me. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they don't mean the same thing. I'm a great smuggler guy myself. Shout out to the Dakoi Koi brothers. Um, Hopefully, we don't have to cut that out. Uh, no, I'm, no, they were so just, fucking fast, and they all played soccer, so they had this amazing hand-eye um, coordination, and I just was had the shot, but. Uh, you know, I'll give it a th- uh, no documentary's perfect, so I'll give it a solid three. Yeah, I'm with you. I it's three for me. Um, it was over long, and if you are going to watch the documentary, you need to put the closed captions on episode four because for some reason on my first watch, I couldn't hear any of the recordings when they're getting Banerjee. Right. Yeah, that was not um, the best, and I and I thought I would have liked to. You know, they pretty much interviewed the two girls, you know, Mike's yes. wife yes. and the older. By the uh, way, how about her lips? Oh, boy. I mean, <laughs> it's, I've never seen plastic surgery make anyone look better. Um, I have. Uh, well, thanks again, man. Thank you, man. I and, love you guys. When uh, is we, this out? Uh, it'll be out Wednesday. We have to decide if we're going to break it up into two parts because this is a record. I have an idea. We'll talk While about you it guys later. do that, I got to pee. I hate to leave. Uh, a no, no, no. No, we're <laughs> no, we can't no, go no, on any longer. Going, like, That's it. Guys, we're out. Give us uh, five stars on Apple Pod. Uh, send us an email if, if you want at downonthedockspod at gmail.com. And, of course, don't forget to join the Discord. We love your uh, contributions for um, documentary suggestions as well. So, um, yeah, uh, we'll be back next week. Dave, what do you want to say? Yeah, dude, thank you. Hey, write a freaking review. It helps us all. Retired sexual blowtorch. Keep, Keep making us memes. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Bye.